the children to bed. It's time for Dan and Aldo to bear their souls. I love the Chicago Bears more than I do masturbating, and that is a lot. Then, with three seconds left, Bob Avellini throws a 30-something yard touchdown pass to Greg Latta, and the Bears win, and I literally shit my pants. I swear to God, I literally did. <laughs> Eric Kramer, for me, I love the guy. He's a tragic figure. I mean, he embodies all that is... If they don't run the ball here, I'm going to vomit. I swear to God. Look, I don't mean any disrespect. He just didn't play that well. Not for a guy of his caliber. You know, they won, but I'm, I'm going to be miserable all week because they stunk. I don't really have any recollection of that at all, but I guess perhaps I blacked it all out. So Dan, tape is the ultimate tool for scouts and for coaches to evaluate players, to detect plays and so forth, and they spend hours looking at tape, right? Why do they so often get shit wrong? I love the efficiency of bourbon. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan and Aldo. Yes, sir. Dan Aguirre, are you there? I'm looking for inspiration, Aldo. I'm looking for something. <laughs> I feel I'm so downtrodden right now that I feel reticent to actually express that because I don't want people to ex accuse me of not being a real fan or only wanting... Justin to be uh, benched because he's black or just some horrible shit that wouldn't be true, you know? Uh, I love Justin Fields. I Again, I tell you, I've got four of his jerseys. I want him to be the guy, but he's failing the eye test. Like, he's really, really failing the we, You heard Greg Gabriel with you yesterday. It's not just it's not just me who's giving up. I mean, I'm uh, on Sunday... During the game, he's obviously going to start, and I'm going to want him to break out and have a game where he can tell all of us to suck his dick. And and I want to be one of the guys in line. You're right. <laughs> Please, not in my face because I deserve it. But it's looking bad, although it's looking really bad. I've lost a lot of faith. It's not just 0-2. You and I both have been Bears fans for decades. So we, we're used to 0-2. I mean, come on. It's just the 0-2 feels like it's something more. Like it means – we're going to have a new quarterback soon. We're going to have a new coach soon. It looks like another continuation of another saga of the Bears just sucking. So if you have anything that can make me feel better about the situation, please take the floor. Well, I've got something in the media mashup. Uh, the last couple of segments might offer uh, at least a different perspective on things. Uh, the the hope for Justin, you know, it, it's really a, a flip of the coin. We have to see how this plays out. We The one thing I disagreed with Greg Gabriel on, and, and I share his frustration, I share your frustration, but Greg wants like Tyson Bajan to start playing immediately. And I think, Greg, you've been in the NFL for 
30 plus years. How could you say that a third string quarterback who has never played in an NFL game, never played a division one game. He's, 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 he's played in small stadiums against inferior schools. How do you, how can you expect him to be ready to play in the NFL? But he was so impressed by his play in the preseason that he thinks, and he also thinks Justin is beyond salvage that he wants to, to see if Tyson Bajan can be the guy. So that way we don't have to invest a first round draft pick. I think you've got to give him up until week 10. You know, I think I got the schedule up here. Maybe you and I can pick our, our a, a date where um, we think well, it I might be a good time. Said real quick? Please do. There's no way, in my opinion, I humbly dis- uh, disagree with uh, Mr. Gabriel as well, because Everything you just said on the buildup, and then you're going to ask him to start against the reigning, defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs on the road in a game that most of the country is going to get in terms of national television. Like you said, this dude's from here, man, playing in small stadiums in West Virginia. I mean, that is too hard of a task. It's not even fair to him. So Mm -hmm. I think – I don't want to steal your thunder on this, but maybe – if you oh, really please. wanted to, to start him soon, then maybe after the Washington game, because you have a break there, you get like a week and a half where that's a Thursday night game to get him ready for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. See, I think, and, and and Mike North is saying week eight. After week eight, if if Justin Fields hasn't shown that he's really the guy, then you bring in Bajan in week nine against the Saints. I think it should be after the week 13 bye. That way he gets two weeks to prepare for the Lions. He is, you know, he's two weeks of practicing as the number one quarterback, although they don't really practice that that bye week. But at least, you know, I would say like immediately make him the number two quarterback. So he starts to get that kind of feel that he is part of the, the 53, the active roster, and then mentor him, you know, for these next several games. And then week 14, now that is if Justin Fields doesn't improve, because there is a, still a very good chance that he could, that something can click and he's just going to pull that trigger. And he's just going, he's going to first of all, see the field. Like, let me, let me share something with you. I saw this just a little while ago. I think everybody who watches football loves Brian Baldinger. This is his uh, evaluation of a play Justin Fields uh, did against the Tampa Bay Bucks. Of all the frustration in Chicago about this offense, maybe this play right here embodies it better than any other play. Because in this business, you can't have a better pocket than this. You can't have this much space. This is what's so frustrating. You got space and you got time. Like nobody gets this kind of time. Like just watch this. Like nobody gets this kind of time. Here's what's even more frustrating is I don't know what in the world Justin's looking at right here. I mean, if you just freeze it right here, they're in this zone right here. I mean, you've got Rashawn Johnson right there. Like, pick a guy. It's first and ten. Pick a guy. Like, what in the world? Why won't he throw this? But, like, look at Rashawn. It's a touch. It's a walk. They've completely blown the coverage. That's that's frustrating. That's just frustrating. You cannot look at that and not be reminded of Mitchell Trubisky. 
That was his problem. He couldn't find the open guy down there, and he was open. That's the same thing. So I, all of these people on social media who are still defending Justin and blaming, there is blame to go around. But it's like they're saying the coaching staff is ruining him. Well, how can the coaching staff be ruining him when he's got a wide open man right there? Two. Uh, two, three, maybe four. <laughs> and he got sacked in that play, right? Yes, he, he he took off with the ball and uh, hi, by the way, Heidi, I love you and she's she's having a bad day like I have today. I hate feeling like this. She says I'm always an optimist, positive, but I don't feel any of that right now. Dan doesn't. I don't. Heidi, you don't. I know a number of other people. Mike Henneman says Fields' brain is scrambled eggs. That they they didn't help the kid. They made him think more instead of playing instinctually. And Michael, maybe that's the thing. Maybe we need to just say, dude, go out there and play playground, uh, you know, uh, football. Like Magic Johnson in Winning Time, he didn't want to play that structured offense. He wanted to grab that ball, rush it downfield, and play school ground basketball. Maybe that's what you got to do with Justin Fields. Don't turn him into a traditional quarterback because I don't think he's capable of doing that. Let him be him. One thing that I've been saying, and again, I'm not a coach. I'm not here to tell you that I know better than you or anybody else. But as a novice who's watched a lot of football, it just feels like to me it would behoove the Bears with number one in there, bring that fullback in, two back set, and put Justin under center and go with play action, go with bootlegs and waggles and rollouts and don't have him in the shotgun every play. I thought that's what Matt Nagy did. Why are we doing that shit? Like, you know, he's in the shotgun like 90% of the time Sunday. Like that doesn't seem to fit his his mo. Like what make what he does best. Even if you don't want him running like he did last year, at least put him in formations that you can pound the rock with because that's what we did well, right? Yes, so we can indeed. build upon that and then utilize his strengths of being able to run and throw on the run. But they just like they're like this dogged determination to put him in the shotgun every play, which seems to be hurting the running backs too. Well, it, it is possible that Poles and Eberflus and Getze got together and said, we need to know if this guy can be a pocket passer because in the NFL, eventually you're going to have to successfully pass from the pocket in order to go deep into the playoffs and, and even make the Super Bowl. So we need to know. So let's invest the first two or three games into seeing if he can play well from the pocket and maybe now they're saying okay that, this isn't working so we need to win games let's get back to having him run and and i think it was uh, uh cliff victoria mike henneman saying one read what if that guy ain't open then go uh and, and maybe it needs to be simplified for him that way and, and, and justin's a smart guy but sometimes like did you see the broadcast uh, of sunday's game the very beginning uh, I watched the whole game. What what part specifically are you talking about? Before before the, the, the game started, they had a picture of Justin on the bench in the sideline in Tampa Bay, and he had his eyes closed, and it was like he was meditating. It almost seemed like he was nervous, and he was trying to control his breathing and stuff. And I understand I do that stuff. I mean, I get nervous. I got to give a speech in front of five people. I get nervous, and I control my breathing. 
But this is a big-time athlete who has played in national collegiate championship games in front of 80,000 people. What's going on now that I'm seeing this totally different guy, a guy who's afraid to throw the ball, a guy who looks nervous on the sideline and is doing all this yoga bullshit to help calm his uh, nerves? What has happened to him? And then one other thing, I got a feeling that Greg might have done this instant flip on Justin because maybe he talked to one of his buddies. You know, he, Greg knows everybody in the NFL, and so, and somebody told him something and said, "Yeah, I don't think this is going to work." And they had. I'm just totally speculating here, so uh, I, I just wonder if th there is this rumor—not rumor, but this talk—spreading out through the out the NFL world saying he's not the guy that we want him to be. He can be a highlight machine, but he's not a, an NFL quarterback. I can't, obviously, that's conjecture, and you acknowledge that, the part with Greg. So yes. I can't speak to that part, but everything else you said, I again, I think that's that's what I'm saying. I agree with you so much on that because over the years, I've I've mentioned this last week or in the, year, the week before or whatever, it feels like I'm always trying to fight a narrative with the bears. Like, Oh man, no Cutler really is the guy. He's going to show you now, you know, um, Trubisky can overcome this or that, you know, and before that it was like Rex and, and, and Jim McMahon. It's like, I'm always rooting for this guy when the writing is on the wall and I don't want to read what is, is, has been written. Mm -hmm. What you're saying about Justin, it's there. The narrative is there. And when the narrative is there, it is so hard to overcome that. Sometimes you got someone like Jim Plunkett, first round bust, first pick in the draft, thrown the fuck away and comes back and wins the Super Bowl. But that's an aberration. Yeah. Usually, like if they tell you you're not any good, the rest of the league agrees and you're out of the league pretty soon. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, Justin is swimming upstream now. There's no way around it. And maybe to your point, I didn't notice that uh, the Tampa thing where he was meditating. I, I didn't see that. Maybe I was on my phone or something. Um, but perhaps he knows that too. And he's thinking, man, this is a big game. We fucked up against the Packers. I need to win today. And he's just thinking, how do I get it done? I mean, if you were him right now, it's kind of hard not to feel under pressure, right? Absolutely. I've been in situations in my own personal life, and clearly not as an NFL athlete or, or, or anything near that level. But I've been in, you know, having to do a presentation in front of a corporate CEOs and vice presidents and stuff where I was like, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm just shitting my pants, you know, selling an idea, you know, asking for a half a million dollars to do a video and stuff and just getting so effing nervous. So I can only imagine what he's going through and the fact that he's, he's got grown men, six foot five, 300 pounds trying to kill him. <laughs> so yeah, that's a whole different thing. I applaud that he's out there and, and, and I really do wish I can give him a hug and that somehow I could throw a, a, a positive voodoo curse on him and he could be the quarterback that we all, all of us Chicago Bears fans deserve. I, I've actually been thinking, Dan, it, it, is there maybe a curse? Could, could 
the Mike Ditka not giving Walter Payton his touchdown, could that have caused a curse somehow? Could someone in the Payton family have cursed the Bears organization? Or could something else in Bears history have, have caused some voodoo queen to give us a curse? Because what, what we're suffering through now is unbelievable. we got the national TV pregame show people laughing at us about the losing streak and how many points we've given up during that losing streak. 25 plus points for every loss and they laugh at us. This is horrific. I Yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't know if it's the Walter touchdown or lack thereof in Super Bowl 20, but midway through 86, you know, McMahon takes the cheap shot from Charles Martin in week 12. And from that moment on, that ended the dynasty, whether we wanted to, maybe you didn't know it at the time, but it ended the potential dynasty of having, you know, the best team in the NFL history that people still say that 40 years later, and you mm-hmm. only get one title out of it. And then since then, it's just been 30 plus years of mediocrity. I mean, it has been and that. And you look at Iberflus, I know he, he's so much better than Matt Nagy. You know, he's a real a real coach, and he's probably a good coordinator, even though the defense has been putrid under his watch here with the Bears. But think about this. He was 2-1. and 2-1 one. and one in his first three games. So where has he gone from there? That means he's lost 15 of the last 16 games as head coach. 12 in a row and given up 25 points within every game of that 12-game losing streak. Again, that's never happened before. So right. I don't under I know Eberflus and, and Poles are boys, but if this doesn't turn around, this isn't just a failure from Justin Fields. This is a failure from him. If he only wins one or two games this year, or dare I say none, how do you keep this guy around? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I got a feeling that, uh, and we'll hear this in a media mashup. Jalen Johnson uh, is. Uh, says some provocative things. I, I got a feeling that these players are tuning Iberflus out. You know, the whole hits thing, that that only works if you're winning, you know. And um, just his style, you know, for to, for the, this, the modern NFL player, he's very white bread, vanilla. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not at all trying to be racist or racial in, in, in using those words, no, but those are the common. You're trying yeah. to say he's just bland. Bland, exactly. He's Better a word. A lot of charisma. Right. You know, I mean, has he ever inspired you? Has he ever said anything in a press conference or a one-on-one interview? And and he, lately, he sounds even more defeated than I've ever heard him. It, it really is kind of a replay of the Matt Nagy era uh, with him. And I, I think he's a, he's a pretty decent defensive coordinator. He had success, although he had much better personnel. But perhaps he's not the type of head coach that can work with – the, this type of roster, uh, a, a blend of a lot of young players with just a, a smattering of veterans, perhaps he's a better coach when he's got Pro Bowl caliber coach players. I mean, that could be anybody. Players. Any True. coach is going to be better in that regard. But I, I think your point, again, is is right on. It's poignant here is to say that he maybe grown men don't like like Deion Sanders said, I don't want to come to the NFL because millionaires don't want my rah-rah speeches. That's a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it just feels like like Eberflus, we said this last season when they were trying to lose. 
okay, we got this hits principle. We got to try no loafing, but you know, it's okay to do all that right now. Cause we're trying to lose. So, mm-hmm. but now we're trying to win. So how do you listen to the guy that allowed you to, I mean, was okay with losing before, but not anymore. Now we're trying to win. It's kind of hard to motivate the cats when, you know, you were okay with this reign of whatever the fuck, however you describe it, just of, of incompetency of losing. Like you said, yeah. Jalen Johnson said, I'm tired of losing. It's overwhelming me. Again, oh. I'm paraphrasing. David Montgomery said that when he went to Detroit. So mm-hmm. a lot of these players just look at him as like, he's not getting the job done. Why am I killing myself for this guy? But yeah. I will say listening to him, he still feels like an adult in comparison with Matt Nagy versus Matt Nagy being a guy that played Madden a few years and thinks he can in coach an NFL team. Yeah, former Arena League uh, quarterback who really wants to be the quarterback, but says he can't. He wants to call the plays and and uh, and and eventually be a head coach again. Um, you know, Mike North last week he started this new show in the barroom called Mike North's Press Conference, and it's, it gives him thirty minutes to espouse his with a sponsor. sponsor. Yeah, with a with a sponsor, right? Uh, and so. He last week in his debut show, he said the Bears should try to go after Deion Sanders and uh, Jim Harbaugh or John Harbaugh. Yeah, no, Jim Harbaugh. And um, obviously, as you said, Sanders isn't coming to the NFL. He doesn't want to uh, coach. He's had success with young players. He knows that's that's his area. Harbaugh is an interesting candidate. I, I don't like him. And Greg Gabriel says he's fucking crazy. You got to stay away from these these nuts, you know. Uh, but I do think that Mike is on to something. We need to hire a coach who has a big name and a big presence. We need to go back to to the Mike Ditka type of hiring. Somebody who's going to come into Hallisall and is literally going to uh, command kick, respect. Command respect by kicking down doors and just, you know, and, and, and a guy that, also, of course, knows what he's doing, but I, I think I think it's got to be a proven winning head coach, not some, a first timer again. Exactly, none of that, none of none of that. I, I, Sean Payton would have been a perfect example, but of course, he's proving to not be doing too good over in Denver. But you know, somebody who has had success like a Sean Payton, a name doesn't immediately come to to, to mind. Like Harbaugh, again, Harbaugh like, played with the organization. Right. Mm-hmm. And yep. Like I said, I've mentioned this. His hero was Mike Ditka. Now, yep. Ditka, of course, blew him up on the sidelines in the Metrodome after the, the audible with Todd Scott in 92. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that led to Mike Ditka being fired at the end of the season. So he had his moment with Ditka, that impasse. But yet he still has a huge picture of Mike Ditka walking with Bears gear on, giving someone the middle finger. And he just that's the epitome of his of who he is. That's who he looks up to. And he was here. He cares, man. Like, he's taking a team to the Super Bowl. They almost won it, too. So it's not like they went there and lost 59-10 or something. So I think he's an excellent hire if you can mm-hmm. get him. Now, maybe he is a little bit, I don't know, not legally insane, but obscure or quirky or whatever you want to say. But mm-hmm. that maybe that's what we need. Look what Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell says crazy shit about taking people's kneecaps out and drowning kids or whatever. But the Lions are winning with him. Now, I know they're one and one, but he's turned the program around. There's no way mm-hmm. we can dispute that at this point. 
they they beat the Chiefs, they beat Green Bay uh, on Sunday night, eliminated from the playoffs, overcome a one and six start. Dan Campbell's doing good things in Pontiac or or Detroit now. They they play in yeah. Ford Fields. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan at first, but I gotta admit, you know, the, the game of football, you know, and a lot of a lot of teams, you need somebody that that way. You know, teams that have gone through tremendous stretches of losing, not making the playoffs, like the Lions, now now the Bears, they they need coaches who are, as you said, command respect and and also are just changing the culture. You see all of these fucking mistakes, as uh, Tooch said in the in the in the chat room that. Uh, J.T. O'Sullivan in his latest video on Justin Fields. It's an hour and a half. I started watching it and I lasted 20, 30 minutes because I was literally crying. Um, it, there was just so many mistake, mistakes. There's receivers running into one another. You know, there's there's uh, stuff that you know that can't be in the fucking playbook. That has to be a mistake by that player. And so what happens when these guys, like a Cole Komet, he had a horrible game with the mistakes that he made. What happens to a guy who has proven that he can play and, yeah, makes mistakes every once in a while, but he's not listening to the coaches. He's not 100% into the game. That's the voice that's talking to them, the Eberfluses and the Getsies and so forth. They're not cutting through. So you need that Dan Campbell guy to, you know, fucking maybe work out with them and, and inspire them and get them fired up coming out of the tunnel, literally spitting blood uh, because they want to fucking win so, so badly. That's where we're at, man. We need a whole fucking new transfusion of blood in this team. Yeah. But I, what I'm concerned about is that from my recollection, this is just my opinion. This is not a fact, but my opinion is Michael McCaskey, God rest his soul, uh, mm -hmm. was so envious of Mike Ditka being a big figure, like almost bigger than the Bears at the time. Mike Ditka was, for a few years, the biggest name in, in fucking NFL. Even if the Bears weren't winning the Super Bowls, he was a pitch man. He was, he was everywhere. And mm -hmm. I think that the Bears organization, when they could slap him down and get rid of him, they wanted to because he, they just didn't like that. So ever since Ditka... Even though Wani had some fire, every person they've hired, Dick, Jerron, even Lovey, we like Lovey, but Lovey's personality is more like Tony Dungy, not Mike Ditka. So right. it's like every person they've hired has been the antithesis of Mike Ditka. It's like they're so afraid to go back to that that I'm afraid they wouldn't hire Harbaugh because yeah, they don't I... want that commanding presence. They want a quiet, humble, respectful guy. They don't want a guy that'll – tell a Packers fan to go fuck himself on the sidelines, which Harbaugh would do, by the way. Mm -hmm. Zach says Harbaugh telling George McCaskey to get the fuck out of the locker room because it's men only in there would go over like turd in the punch bowl. You're absolutely right. I think that the McCaskey family is part of the issue. It started with the previous McCaskey uh, son. Um, he was he hated Mike Ditka. He didn't like his boorish style, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I think George is a bit like that, too. They, they would prefer the Bill Walsh tea sipping type of head coach. And they have not been able to find them find that coach despite the numerous efforts. Hey, um, 
Let me tell people what's going on. In about 30 minutes, our guest, Bob Angelo, who is an NFL producer, writer, director, he uh, gave birth to HBO's Hard Knocks, is going to be here to talk about his new book, The NFL on Camera. And so really looking forward to that. And what we're going to do next is do the media mashup. So do you want to say anything, uh, uh, Dan, before we go to media mashup? It's about yes. 24 minutes long. Please. You told me, I think it was yesterday when you were done editing, you were like, I think I, with this, I think I can, re I, and I'm again, I'm paraphrasing. I think I can restore your hope a little bit. So you won't be so negative right now. And you're saying, oh, we're not talking about like when you had surgery, that's real life. I mean, this is real life, but, you know, when there was a chance you could die a couple months ago, that was more serious than us worrying about Justin Fields. But all things equal, this is what we care about this shit almost as much, like when, when we're healthy, you know, when there's not something else in the way. So this matters. And you said you might be able to give me some hope or another, an alternative perspective, and I'm ready for that because I'm, I hate being negative. I hate going into the game thinking we can't win because – why am I a fan otherwise? Well, I, I do have to admit that when I told you that, I was a little bit under the influence of a, a puff of marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> so everything was rosy then. <laughs> so we'll listen to it again together this time, and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll feel the same way on the other end. Uh, here goes uh, our media mashup. You said that you know Justin Fields has not been playing well, and we've been having the conversation over do you have to drastically change things on the offense and maybe make it look a little bit more like last year than this year? That feels like an emergency procedure to me. What do you think they have to do to make Justin Fields better? Yeah, rewatching the film a little bit this morning and last night, I don't think they have to drastically change it, but you do have to sprinkle it in and give him, say, like when they block the field goal, why not immediately give him a zone read, right? Or run our quarterback run, run him downhill instead of sticking him in the pocket on another play action pass where play action passes guys always take a little bit longer. You tell the offensive line, look, we're trying to take a shot here. This is going to be a three to four second play. Block it a little longer. Immediately, Darnell Wright gets beat by Shaquille Barrett. Uh, Cole Komet releases inside and may, may have picked Darnell Wright off of he may have picked him off of that block. And then right after that, you run a sweep with Velas Jones. And now you're just in a third and long. And then they're spying Justin Fields with two, with two linebackers. And he gets sacked in the pocket there on, I think it was like a third and 13. So there, you don't have to go all in, right? Not all in on a Greg Roman offense. Greg Roman, former offensive coordinator for Baltimore Ravens. Uh, you, know, you know, you don't have to go to old Lamar Jackson where you're running quarterback power, quarterback sweep. But why not one or two of them? Why not one or two of them at that time? You just had a good drive. Why not just sprinkle it in here and there, get him comfortable again, or just get him rolling, keep yourself in favorable down and distances, and then run the plays you want to run. Here's my problem. If you're trying to develop Justin Fields in a pocket, if you're trying to see if he can go through progressions, if you're trying to see if he can go through reads, well, all those screens are not helping him develop. When you watch the game again, Olin, last night and this morning, and the six sacks that Justin Fields uh, went through, I, there were times where it felt like he was holding on to the ball way too long, and there were times the protection broke down. When you look at the shared responsibility between the offensive line and Justin Fields, 
Where do you lean toward in terms of saying you need to address this first? Right down the middle. Right down the middle, if you watch that film, of, of a young offensive line on the road in Tampa Bay with silent count, guys jumping the cadence. The Bears were trying to change the cadence up a little bit, but they were still getting a good jump on the Chicago Bears silent count cadence, and they got to learn how to switch it up. You got to see that the guy did jump it and just try to throw the ball away and not take that sack. But you had a young, you have a first-year right tackle, you have a first-year right guard, you got Lucas Patrick, you got Cody Whiter, you got a second-year left tackle on the road there uh, with, with Justin Fields, a young quarterback in his third year, uh, second year in the system. There's going to be some problems there. These guys, remember Lucas Patrick now, he didn't play in the preseason. The, these guys have not played with him at center. They got to get his timing. I wonder how much work they got after practice on silent count. Tackles trying to get a jump on a silent count. We see all this stuff nowadays. Tackles, you know, is the tackle false starting? Is he not false starting? That's them trying to get a jump on the cadence. So a lot to work on. First time these guys all get to see uh, a film of themselves on the road together, playing together. There's a lot of growing this group has to do together, quarterback and offensive line and wide receivers. They are a very young team. We are very disappointed in the way they, they are playing right now. But there's still a lot of growth, guys, on that film that these guys can make. Acknowledge that Darnell Mooney acknowledged that that um, I am stopping this here. Dan, you, you're there, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. I'm stopping this here because our guest is a little early and I don't want him uh, spending time listening to stuff when he's, his time is more valuable than ours. <laughs> so I'm going to bring him in and we're going to talk about his latest book, The NFL Off Camera. It's Bob Angelo from NFL Films. Bob, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Let me get my background set here because I'm writer, producer, director, just like you. <laughs> I wasn't and getting on early. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I didn't want to keep you waiting, so I figured out we'll start with you. We were in the middle of a media mashup. We, we, we get sound from all the local radio stations and, and listen to the professionals talk about the Bears. And then Dan and I uh, and, and our guests come in and complain about the Bears afterwards. But we want to talk about you, your career with NFL Films. Dan and I are lifelong, lifelong NFL Films lovers, just plain lovers. And so when I saw you on Good Morning Football on the NFL Network promoting this book, I said to myself, I need to see if we could talk to this guy. I'm so, here. Bob, I'm happy to be Bob, here. Bob, what I'd like you to do first, just so for our audience, we have people from 18 to 80 years old. But for those who don't know the story of NFL films, can you tell us a little bit about the Sables, the dad and the son? And maybe that's a good way to start with your story. Well, I started watching NFL films productions in the 1960s and the slow motion cinematography the wonderful orchestral scores. And then, of course, John Facenda's voice. I, I was just in love with it right from the get-go. In college, I continued to watch NFL films, follow pro football, do um, radio shows at both Penn State and Northwestern about pro football. But in the back of my mind, I always said to myself, somebody's writing those things. Somebody's making those movies. Some, you know... I know as much about pro football as anybody I know. So um, as time went on, I said, 
I've got to write to uh, somebody from NFL Films. I picked Steve Sable's name off the credits. I had no idea who he was, but he was one of the last people listed in the credits next to Ed Sable. So I thought to myself, he's got to be important. I wrote him a letter when I was a senior at Penn State. And by the time I finished graduate school at Northwestern, they had an opening. They only had about 42 people in the company at the time, but I had really come to know their work. And uh, I started sending Steve things that I did at both Penn State and Northwestern radio shows. Uh, at uh, in, in both colleges, it was called Pro Football Report. It was on Sunday night. I would rip and read wire, wire service copy and then uh, do a little editorial and uh Steve then realized this guy really wants to work here. I mean, this guy is serious about it. And uh, what Steve was looking for at the time and and, until the end, he he was always looking for writers. He said, I can teach people how to be filmmakers. Writers tend to have organized thoughts and they tend to make good filmmakers. So uh, I had some writing experience from things that I'd written for pro football magazines, uh, for my radio show scripts. And... um, he looked at that big pile of stuff that he had for me. I mean, literally a big, deep pile of, you know, not just a cover letter and a resume, a whole bunch of stuff. And he said, this guy wants to work here. Let's bring him in for an interview. That was on June 6th, 1975. And at 1.35 p.m., not that I remember, <laughs> Ed Sable hired me. And it changed my life, changed the trajectory of my life forever. I spent my entire working career with NFL Films, Started there on June 16th, 1975, retired on February 16th, 2018. And before I turn it over to Dan to ask some questions, what inspired you to write the book, The NFL Off-Camera, an A to Z guide to the league's most memorable players and personalities? I think that so many people said to me, why don't you write a book? I said, why? The memoirs of an NFL films producer, I wouldn't buy that. It sounds pompous. Who would read this? And then somebody convinced me eventually, your stories have value. I said, could you please explain that to me? Because I'm, I'm not getting it. Um, you're the only one who knows these things about Lyle Alzado or about uh, George Hallis or about Norm Van Brothout. I mean, pick any of the stories in my book. In every single story, as you'll see if you if you read, um, there's a personal experience. That was the one requirement I've made of myself. I said, I don't want to write something that people can discover on uh, on uh, Google or you know uh, j- just by you know searching online on Wikipedia. I want to tell them things about people with whom I've had personal experiences. That's what would make it unique. So, and also, I decided. Pro football fans consume what they, what, what you know, they, they, they watch football games. It takes three to three and a half hours to watch the home team play a game. It takes longer than that every week for them to get their fantasy football teams together. <laughs> uh, what I'm going to do is write something with a random access menu that is nothing more than three pages, nothing more than three pages. And, yeah, I, I always described it as a as a toilet book. My wife said, no, 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 it's not a toilet book. It's, it's a coffee table book for crying out loud. But, I said, but it's something that, you know, during half or during the commercial break of the game, somebody can walk it down and, you know, take care of business and, you know, read it and get something out of it by the time he came back to, to watch the, the next kickoff. So that was my goal. Um, and it 
kind of turned out okay. I, um, I I put it out there, and the second publisher that I took it to hit on it, and um, I got a, a, a good forward written by Ray Didinger, who is a media legend in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some, some uh, nice endorsements on the back from Shannon Sharp, from Andrea Kramer, and from Dick Vermeil, all friends of mine and all, all people with whom I worked over my years at NFL Films. And uh, suddenly I had something. The editor from uh, the uh, publishing house said, are you willing to work on this? Because this is going to take some work. And I said, absolutely. You're going to publish my book. I will do whatever you want me to do to get this thing ready to go. And so it was. And uh, it, it, it came out officially this year. Um, I believe July 7th or so, right you know, right in that area. And uh, so far, I'm hearing we're doing pretty well with book sales. Yeah, it's a great book. Go ahead, Dan. Bob, sir, if you don't mind me bouncing around a little bit, because that's I've I've read. I didn't have been able to read it from front to back yet. You know, so that's I've been not how you're around. supposed to read it. You're supposed to read the stories that you want to read. That's the <laughs> random access menu. Yeah. Right, right, right. So that's what I've done. I, I really focused on the broadcasting part, but. If I could jump in, you if, based upon your hire date, which I read in the book, actually, and you just reiterated that it was in 75, is it safe to assume your first Super Bowl working for NFL Films was Super Bowl 10? Is that right, in January of 76? Uh, actually, I think I – no, I, I didn't work the Super Bowl uh, my first three or four years. I didn't actually start shooting a camera until my third year at NFL Films. Oh. And it took me until Super Bowl 13 with the Cowboys and the Steelers. Same two teams as 10, but 13 was the first game that I shot, the first actual Super Bowl. Well, I want and- to comment on that in just a second, but I want to ask, maybe you know the story. Mm-hmm. How did, again, if you don't, I apologize for speaking out of school. Assuming you're at Super Bowl 10, hypothetically, how did Black Sunday with John Frankenheimer get access to all the all those plays and NFL films that was being filmed during the game, right? With Robert Shaw running around. Can you expand on that at all? I remember a little bit about that. Um, Steve Sable did a lot of that cinematography. Uh, if you'll notice in some of the shots, I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers defensive end wearing number 68 was a white man. Of course, that's wrong. That was Elton <laughs> Greenwood. Um there were lots of things like that that a purist like myself found objectionable. But when the editors combined what Steve shot and John Frankenheimer, of course, was the director of that film. And he you know, was very specific about what he wanted Steve to get for him. And Steve was a very good cameraman, a very competent cameraman. Uh, when Steve's footage was integrated with actual game footage, it looked pretty damn realistic, I thought. Um, yes. I the, My one flaw of that was, you know, if you got a big gun, shoot it. I mean, that that was Paul Brown's, uh, you know, uh, theory of playing football and coaching football. And I was a little disappointed with the ending because, you know, all those uh, darts wound up in, uh, in, in, the, in the ocean and not. And I'm glad I'm glad that, you know, of course, that, uh, you know, 80,000 people in the Orange Bowl uh, weren't weren't killed instantly. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, it was kind of an anti-climax. But that's essentially how the story was written, and that's what it had to be. I guess the climactic moment would have been when Robert Shaw finally gunned down the uh, the Arab dame who was giving him trouble, you know, from uh, from Act One. Yeah. So Super Bowl Thirteen, I remember reading the, I, and I've watched the game many times myself, the from start to finish. I'm mm-hmm. not a Pittsburgh fan, but I, I like I like the NFL. So I right, watch what you say. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I know, I know. That's <laughs> where I was going to comment on what you said in your book. I didn't ever catch 
the broadcast calling them the dirty towels. Was that real? You were saying that he was calling the the terrible towel the dirty towel, and you took objection to that. I don't think it was in that Super Bowl. I think it was Kurt Gowdy, but I think it was during championship games with the Raiders. Oh. Kurt, Kurt was a big fan of the Raiders. I mean, he didn't hide that. And, uh, you know, he was allegedly neutral as a network, uh, you know, play-by-play guy. And But – my friends and I in Pittsburgh, all listening to Kurt, said that, that SOB keeps calling them the dirty towels. They're they're the terrible towels. I mean, we we all knew that story, and uh, just kind of an oversight. I mean, I got to know Kurt pretty well later on, and we worked together on a, a series that I was very proud of. But uh, Kurt and I, um, I, I enjoyed his company. We we would talk football. He would ask me things, how I felt about certain things. One of the things I confided in him was once was when he said, well, who do you think is the best coach ever? And I said, well, on, on game days, of course, uh, you know, and getting his team ready to win championships, that would be Lombardi. But Paul Brown changed everything, everything about uh, the way football was coached and the way teams were built and uh, how teams practiced and how teams game planned and how teams prepared. And Kurt agreed with me. He said, that's a really good observation. I, I, I said, and basically at any given time, every head coach in the National Football League can trace his lineage through somebody who either played for Paul Brown or was coached by Paul Brown. It's it's a very it's a remarkable thing. But uh, there's the young Kurt. I mean, uh, well, not young Kurt. There, there's the, the, the middle aged Kurt with Tom Brookshire, I believe. That um, that's Al Michaels, I believe. Oh, Al Michaels! My goodness, I didn't recognize him. Yeah. Um, but I, working with Kerr was a trip. I, I he he would walk or somehow uh, be conveyed to a studio that was close to his home in downtown Boston. And the first time I sat down, I could hear something rattling, and I was thinking, "What is that? What is that?" I so I, I would ask Kurt to just could could we do that one one more time, one more time, please? And he would ask me what was wrong with the read. I didn't want to tell him. And I got on the uh, the intercom with the um, sound engineer i said what is that rattling is it it's kurt's false teeth <laughs> uh, how do you ask a guy to redo something you know when his false teeth you know when his dentures are flopping around <laughs> his i couldn't ask him to, to do anything over again but it didn't matter because kurt's voice lent legitimacy to anything involving sports professional sports he, he was one of those rare people like frank gifford or pat summerall or kurt gowdy when you heard his voice, it, that meant it was real. You know, this is real, and uh, I, I could put up with the uh, with 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 the music and the proper mix. You couldn't hear the, the choppers rattling around in there. One of the highlights of the book so far for me, and this is going to lead to my next question, but and this is not disingenuous. Just reading you say that John Facendo struggled saying Hank Stram's name, I was like, that made the whole book for me. Not that I wanted to hear Facendo struggle. But just that anecdote, that's exactly what I'm reading your book for. And, <laughs> and it, 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 it was well known in, in NFL films that you couldn't write that word for him. It's a, it's a single syllable. We would spell it out in all caps phonetically. S-H-R-A-M. Shram. Stram. Stram. Stern. Damn it, Johnny. You got to get this right. You got to get, you know, and, and. That was that word. Now, I, Manu Tuiasosopo, remember the defensive tackle from Seattle? 
Yes. Yeah. I did the first Seattle highlight film that NFL films ever did. That's right around, you know, one, it was two years into my career there. And I spelled it out phonetically. And I thought, oh, this is going, this will be a picnic. And John looked at Manu Tuiasosopo. And I said, later, John, how did you get that so easily? And he said, I could see it phonetically, Bobby. <laughs> and what, why why not scram? And he said, I'd rather not talk about that one. I mean, he literally couldn't say it. He would sit there and say, stam, scram, uh, uh, damn it, John, damn it. John. This is so simple. Come on. Never got it. Never ended. I was just going to say, before, uh, Dan, you get to your next question, I've got a little bit of John Facenda for those uh, people watching and are not familiar with the voice of God from NFL Films. This is Facenda on a, a, a 20 second clip on, on a video about Doug Atkins, the former Chicago Bear. Doug Atkins was like a storm rolling over a Kansas farmhouse. He came from all directions, and all there was to do was to tie down what you could and hope he didn't take the roof. I that's love fantastic. it. Oh, love that's it. classic. Just love classic. it. <laughs> that goes to my next question. It, and this is my opinion, but it, 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 I feel like it's legitimate. I, I, I assume Facenda, he he passed away around 84 or so, right? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. The, it felt like to me that the NFL, like, the, like for example, the day before the Super Bowl, ESPN would show that just a plethora of the highlights, you know, all night long. Super Bowl 1 through 25, whatever we had at that time. Uh, leading up to the game. So I, I watched those so many times because you didn't have YouTube yet, and I recorded them on VHS. But it felt like after Facenda was gone that the whole structure of the Super Bowl highlight changed. Like they started incorporating, like, the team announcers and just it switched it. I, I liked it so much better the way the highlights were with Facenda. Was there ever – was that a, a concerted effort to not try to, uh, to replicate that with a, another announcer? I think it was several things at work. I think we were going for a broader spectrum of audio. Um, but, of course, I mean, Steve always, Steve Sable wrote for John better than anybody. And Steve wrote a paucity of words for John. And because John could say, his voice could say so much with so little effort that, um the more words, the it, it just muddied the waters. Steve could write very precise, short, crisp sentences that he knew John could deliver like nobody else. Um, but as we got more advanced as filmmakers, using radio calls and using, you know, um, live sound, sync sound, it it gave it, it gave our soundtracks more texture, more. Um, if, if you will, a, a more complicated uh, um, sound, uh, you know, a more sophisticated sound. Music narration, music narration, music narration, that gets old. That gets old. It, it's, it's hard to pace a film. And one of the things that I, I it, which, which was a conscious effort on uh, all of our parts as we advanced and grew and, and matured as filmmakers was to, to add more sound elements to the productions just to um, give it more variety, uh, more texture, yeah. texture. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, we would we would call it a textured soundtracks. You know, yeah. music narration. Ah, eh, 
we're, we're, we're past that now. We're beyond that. Let's, let's move on. But John's voice, we, we never replaced it. I mean, we, we tried so many different people. We had so many people audition, but nobody ever had that deep baritone. And he was a gentleman, you know, South Philadelphia, Italian gentleman with a stage British accent. I don't know where the hell that came from, but it was just beautiful. Uh, I think Bob Costas said it best. He said, John Facenda's voice is like a musical instrument. And it was. It, NML Films never truly replaced him. However, what we did do was we advanced as filmmakers and you know, we produced films that were a little more sophisticated, had more sophisticated audio tracks. I've, I've got one more opinion I'd like to get your reaction to. Sure. This is my thesis, and I've said this to Aldo many times. It feels like the younger generation, today's millennials, if you will, they don't care about the history of the game at all. Hmm. And maybe and my theory is after Steve passed away, it felt like, especially the NFL Network was still really young. They still showed old games and such. And it kind of, after he died, it feels like the history, the storytelling sort of died too. Do you think there's a connection there? Because it just feels like nobody gives a, a crap about old stuff anymore. And I think the younger person should, like, I loved everything from the 60s. And I, I wasn't born until Carter was president. You know, I loved watching that stuff. But nobody cares anymore. Is that correlation with Steve's passing? Uh, I think it's just that young people today watching professional football, they're watching it for their own purposes. Uh, fantasy football, uh, betting on games, uh, just to be part of a social group. I mean, uh, boys who grew up playing football or played high school football who might have dabbled in it or played uh, flag football in college, they want to maintain that. They, they, they still like the sport. Um, but plus, I think that today's game is a little harder to identify with for a number of reasons. One of them being free agency, the Pittsburgh Steelers that were assembled by Chuck Knoll and put together and culminating with that 1974 draft, they couldn't move. There, there, there was no free agency. Those men stayed together and that's why they won four Super Bowls in six years. I mean, a lot of teams that have been assembled since, if they'd been able to keep all their athletes in one city. And I think, you know, they, they, they might have equaled Pittsburgh's records. Um, I look at young people. I don't know. I, I have a 34-year-old son who loves football the way I did growing up and who still, you know, remembers statistics, remembers games, remembers where he was when certain events take, uh, took place on football fields. He grew up in the Philadelphia area. He knows exactly where he was when the Phillies won the World Series or when the Eagles went to the Super Bowl and won it. Um, I don't think there's as much of that anymore. I don't know that it has to do with, uh, you know, NFL films losing its its impact. I mean, if anything, I think NFL films is bigger and better than ever these days. And there's so much talent there and they do so much good work. And it's nice to see. I'm getting a little off track here, but. Bottom line is, I, I think that, you know, Lisa Simpson's favorite word, meh. You know, I, I think a lot of millennials, a lot of uh, Generation Z folks, I, I think they, yeah, meh, pro football, a big deal. You know, I've got other things to do on Sundays. Um, I get that. I didn't. When I was growing up, I watched pro football and 
I did it dutifully. No one was holding a gun to my head. I watched pro football because I loved it. It was a spectacle. And bear in mind now, in the 1960s, when I was growing up, the Steelers stunk. They were horrible. They never won anything. 63, they had a chance because of a couple of tied games to actually have a higher winning percentage than the New York Giants if they could beat the Giants the last game of the season. Well, of course, they went to Yankee Stadium, got their doors blown off, and that was it. And then, you know, Noel shows up in 69 and starts putting that team together. But my point is, when I was growing up, there were there were three sports in my high school, baseball, football, and basketball. And my school was small, so we had to play all of them. All the young men had to play all of them or be in the band or be ostracized forever. And um, so I think more people from my generation participated in sports and, you know, especially football, because football is the popular sport in most high schools, the most popular sport in most high schools. And the one that involves the most people, marching bands, cheerleaders, majorettes, uh, fans, booster clubs, blah, blah, blah. I don't think there is as much of that anymore. And I think it's more diversified, which is good for the young men and women growing up today. But I just think that affects, I mean, socioeconomically, I think there's not as much pride in the hometown team. Like I want my team to win at all costs. And I'm going to watch, you know, every single Sunday, no matter what. Like, like I did watch suffering through my Steelers, you know, through the 1960s. Let me ask you for an anecdote real quick. Sorry, Aldo. Now, please go ahead. I was reading the one about, you know, Miss America joining the Today Show. The lady that I always had a thing for, and I just want your reaction. Do you think you tell me a story? I like Jane Kennedy. I thought she was the one that was, was like, wow, this woman is the hottest lady I've ever seen. Can you tell me an anecdote about Jane Kennedy? Walking through an airport with Jane Kennedy, she could stop. She would just stop people in their tracks because she was 5'11". She was a tall girl and she had a perfect skin tone. She was gorgeous, just gorgeous. Uh, I worked with Jane a handful of times. Uh, One of the times where I really had a lot of fun was when we went out to Seattle and uh, Jane and I worked with Steve um, Largent, Largent, yeah, and um, mm-hmm. Jim Zorn, and we were all about the same age. And uh, CBS's mandate to me was, and this is right from the producer of the show, have fun with this, please, have fun with this. We want Jane to appear not to be a, a you know, a, a beauty pageant uh, girl. We want her to be somebody who can relate to NFL players. And I knew Jimmy and Steve pretty well, so I wrote this um, this open that involved, you know, them having to do some acting, you know, she came at them and uh, clotheslined uh, Jim knocked him on his A and then reappeared magically over near Steve Largent and bumped, you know, bumped him off of his pass route and basically put them both in a pile together. It took way too long. When I edited the thing, it was, it was like almost 40 seconds. And I said, ah, I can't use it. So I wound up using a more simple, but uh, she got those guys in the interview to really open up. And uh, it was just one of those fun days. Yeah, there she is. Janie was (laughs) walking through an airport with her. I would just stand back and watch people. And they would stop in their tracks. Grown men like, wow, who is that? She's got to be somebody. And, uh, you know, the the football fans, of course, that's that's the girl who replaced Phyllis George. And, you know, Phyllis wasn't bad to walk through an airport with either. I mean, she was a lot of (laughs) fun. But... um, Jane was, she could, she could stop 
so you can stop groups of people in their tracks. I wanted to sneak this question in from Zach Sullivan when we were talking about John Facenda. He uh, asked, would it be wrong to use current technology to duplicate Facenda's voice and make vintage style NFL films today? It's an interesting question because now with the technology, I mean, you could do anything, you know, you, you could do an AI representation of John <laughs> Facenda, but is it wrong? What do you think? I, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to hear the AI representation of John Facenda. I, I don't think it would measure up to the, the real thing. Mm -hmm. And John was just different to work with. The first time I walked into the recording studio at NFL Films, John was in the isolation booth by himself with a light on. That was the only light on in the room. And he looked like Orson Welles sitting there. I mean, he just, I expected to hear Gallo, make we wine <laughs> before it's time. I mean, and I went in there and everyone, everybody warned me, you know, and this is where AI couldn't, couldn't do, couldn't duplicate this. Uh, everybody warned me in advance, two things, Bob, don't go in there with dirty copy. In other words, a script that has words crossed out, new words written above it, printed above it, arrows, and don't write too much. John only has one pace, slow. Well, I didn't pay any attention to anybody. I did it my own way. I went in there. And finally, when he was done and we struggled through it, he, John said, Bobby, if we're going to be working together, you have to learn a few things. First of all, don't bring this dirty copy in here. <laughs> Secondly, you write way too much. You write way too much. Write to be heard, not to be read. That stuck with me. Oh, I get it. That's, yeah. I, I think that's what my broadcast instructors at Northwestern were trying to teach me. Right to be heard. Right to be heard, not read. Yeah. And now coming from you, now it really, now it hits home because I, I've just been dressed down a peg or two and I never, never made that mistake again. The NFL uh, did some work with Bill Curtis uh, in the late 80s. I thought he had a big booming voice. Why do you think he never caught on? He did some NFL films, some voiceovers. I, I, I will take your word for that. I, I don't know. Um, when I was, he was a Chicago school, guy too. When yeah, I was Chicago anchor man. Oh yeah, I, I remember when I was at grad school at Northwestern. I believe Bill was WBBM's anchor, and I think Musburger was actually on that staff because Brent came to um, to Northwestern, his mm -hmm. alma mater, uh, Medill School of Journalism, where I went for graduate school. And actually lectured us once. Um, I, I studied one of one of the courses I took was from a uh, uh, a former network producer for the Mutual Broadcast Network named Ben Baldwin, who was a teacher there. And at one point along in, in, during his career, he actually won the a national award for his his work at, at Medill School of Journalism. But I had the pleasure of taking a course with him, and you know. Um, I, I'm off on a tangent here, but Bill Curtis, um, Bill was, he, he you know, he, I don't think he had the pipes. I mean, he was a, he was a television anchor, a news anchor, uh, as John was in Philadelphia. But John made everything um, sound more important. He brought gravitas to every situation. Bill Curtis read off a teleprompter as well as anybody. Uh, and I'm sure he was, you know, had some editorial control over his cast. But in the overall scheme of best voices of all time, I, you know, I, I don't know that Bill would 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 rank in that. 
He, doesn't he still do a uh, morning radio show on weekends? Uh, no, I, I worked with Bill at WBBM TV for many years, and, and Bill didn't have the passion for sports uh, or, or Chicago Bears football back then. So I, 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 I don't think he would have been a good fit to be, you know, the, uh, to be a successor to John Facenda. Uh, now, you, Bob, have done a lot of innovative things over your years at NFL Films and with CBS Sports and HBO and so forth. I want to talk about some of them. Maybe one of the earliest ones was you working with Irv Cross on the Legends of the Game. And speaking of Brent Musburger, there he is. Um, tell me about uh, working with Irv Cross and the segment that uh, you guys used to call Legends of the Game. I loved Irv. I mean, Irv and I got along right, well, almost right from the start. Another producer from NFL Films was working with Irv prior to me. And this producer um, played college football at Drake and had more actual football experience than I did. I played high school football, was recruited for a few teams, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, he and Irv got along because Irv wanted to do X's and O's pieces. And CBS wanted him to broaden his horizons. So they put him with me. The very first piece I did with him, I remember as he was looking at uh, the script that I put together that I actually recorded on location because I knew how I was going to uh, do the open for the piece. He said, uh, I got to tell you, this doesn't really sound like me. Um, and I said, trust me, Irv, it will. The more we worked together, the more he trusted me because I put him in some situations that a lot of um, uh Correspondents might have said, no, I, don't, I really don't want to do that. He did them all. And um, I mean, I, I remember one day that made all the difference. And this is one of those real personal <laughs> stories that's in my book. And when I think about it, it makes me sad because it was no longer with us. And I love the man. But um, we were doing a piece with Bum Phillips, coach of the Houston Oilers. Not not his kid, but, you know, the, the, the papa who, who coached the, uh, the team back in the the seventies and early eighties. Love you blue. Love, there you go. And uh, I'm working with uh, bum and bum said, y'all want to go to lunch? And I said, sure. You know, y'all like seafood or, you know, and I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm down there. Irv was from Gary in the end. I don't know if Irv ate anything that swam, but um, <laughs> uh, and bum Phillips said to us now, if, if you're into candlelight and BS, uh, you know, you're not going to like this place, but it was an old boat. It was a landlocked old boat that was sitting on land now, and there was a restaurant in it. We're sitting there eating, and I ordered the gumbo. Irv was kind of looking at it. I said, you want to try this? And he said, all right. So I passed it over to him. He didn't have a spoon, so I handed him mine. And Irv used my spoon. And there was something about that moment. From that moment on, Irv, Irv and I treated uh, – we treated each other like brothers. It, it was it was wonderful. Um in 19, I, I remember one piece I did in 1986. I, we, we did a piece on George Plimpton's book for a Thanksgiving Day special. And I worked with Irv and we went up to wherever the Lions held their training camp. And uh, I did a three-part stand-up, um, did the piece. I got permission. Well, I didn't get permission. I got the film from <laughs> um, somebody. Uh, somebody in Hollywood sent it to one of our associate producers and I used clips from the film with Irv's interview of various people. 
And it turned out to be a really fine piece. I mean, one that I was very proud of. And at the end of that, um, I, I remember Irv saying, we can't top that. We can't top that. And we never worked together again. <laughs> it was the last time, the last time I worked with Irv. Um, but he, he was, I, he trusted me. I took him places that he never would have gone. And uh, eventually he, he kind of liked that he, he had this kind of reputation. Now, that's a great, great story. Fun, yeah. Irv always, I was just going to say, Irv always seemed like such a nice guy on television with the big Brent smile. Too. Yeah, Brent, too. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they work so well together. I was just going to ask you the jealousy from, from my perspective. For, did you ever just go into the NFL films and just sit and watch? I mean, it just seems like like I, I never got to see Jim Brown play, but you could have gone in there and just watched a game oh. from 63 or 4. Did you ever do that? Can you tell us about what it was like for you to work there? Like, did you just go watch old stuff? I would have. That's what well, I that was part there. of my education. Uh, when I first started there, they had a list of films that Steve Sable put together that they wanted all new producer directors or writer editors. I started as a writer editor. They wanted us to see all that stuff. And when I say us, after me, after I started, the next year, another guy from Northwestern started. And then two years after that, we had a class of three people. And um, so, you know, we, the company was getting bigger. But, yes, we all had to watch the same things and listen to the same things. And, uh, you know, one of those things was watching Norm Van Brocklin when he was the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. And he was wired for a game. And... <laughs> You know, having played high school football and having having been uh, talked to several times rather forcefully by my head coach because I was a quarterback and, you know, I, I was responsible for everything that was going on out there uh, as a 14-year-old. You know, really? Come on. Uh, but <laughs> um, watching how Norm Van Brocklin addressed Harmon Wages, a running back. Number five. A grown-ass man. And he's talking to him like he was – Kaka on his shoe. I mean, wow. And that, that really like, okay, this is the NFL. Um, and then of course, Steve Sable's uh, monumental production called uh, NFL 74, uh, which was a classic. I watched that over and over and over again. And I learned so much from watching that because the three best editor, writer editors at the time who worked at NFL films worked on that show with Steve and Steve was one of them. And I learned so much just from watching those guys. But when you say jealousy, no, I said to myself, um, jealousy because I have access to this material. But at the same time, I want to learn from these people because I want to go past these people. I, I want to be better than these people and someday, you know, um, show the next generation of new writer, editor, slash producer, directors how to do things here. And uh, well, I'm, one. One of the ways that perhaps, you know, uh, maybe up for debate, but I, I won't. I, this is my opinion. Uh, you were one of the main architects of uh, Hard Knocks. And I have a clip here from season one. I think I got this right. Season one was the Ravens. And this is the Shannon Sharp impersonation scene. So we'll play that and get your thoughts on the other end. Next, we got Tim. Tim is going to portray our tight end. <laughs> Oh, 
Shorty. I know the Baltimore Ravens been hit with a lot of injuries. Though. Yes, you have. Yeah. <laughs> I seen that special HBO School of Hard Knocks when um, Sarah Gooser had locked the tight ends in the room. You humiliated me, dude, on national television. So I want restitution. What? Well, yeah, I, I knew that Goose had something. I knew Goose had something to do with that, and I told Goose then, I said, Goose, I want my restitution. You embarrassed me. I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> That's why I got two bow rings and you don't. <laughs> classic, classic, outstanding. Oh, that was so much fun. Those guys were so cool. Mm -hmm. They were defending Super Bowl champions and they were so relaxed and they were so comfortable in their skin. And after the first week, after uh, Shannon and and, and um, Rod Woodson and Ray Lewis called me down to the end of the practice field and said, yo, Bob, you know, everything's Tony, Tony. This. I said, well, then stop acting like our lenses have player repellent on them. All right. Oh, OK. That's all we got to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just all we want you to do is just have fun. Well, then, then they started having fun. And that night, right. that talent show was classic. I mean, that, that was classic. <laughs> I mean, I, wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, I'm looking at that now thinking, no wonder that thing did so well out there. I mean, yeah. people it. And it was just, all we did was point the cameras. Uh, we, I would tell people in the morning, these are your assignments for the day. And, uh, you know, and we would show up and the Ravens did the rest. And literally, there was no narrator. Leif Schreiber didn't start narrating that show until the second, no, actually, yeah, the second season, maybe. I, I don't remember. But that first show, the Raiders told their own stories. One of the things I remember about that was Brian Billick would always come into our, our interview trailer. And, you know, I would ask questions. He would figure out what I was going for. He would give it to me. And one day he was in a hurry. He's looking at his watch and he got a little frustrated and said, Bob, just tell me what you want me to say and I'll say it. All right. In my own words, but I'll say it. So I spoon fed him, you know, the transitions that I knew our editors would need. And he just read them right off. And it was great working with a guy like that. He could quote Shakespeare or he could tear into an offensive lineman for blowing a, a jet pass protection. I mean, it, it he, he knew it. He, he knew it all. And he knew how to do it in front of the camera. He knew how to do it in that interview trailer to make it all work. And, and that's that's he's one of the reasons Hard Knocks was successful that first year. Now, in your book, you write that you um, interviewed George Hallis, and I think I found a clip of that that I want to share with you, and we could talk about this on the other right. Yes, this right. meeting in Canton on September 17th was held in the Hupmobile showroom uh, in his automobile agency, and of course, there weren't enough, uh, enough chairs for everybody, so they we sat around uh, on the... Uh, running boards of the Hupmobile cars. And in order to join this group, you had to put up $100 for a franchise. I think it's worth a little more than that now. <laughs> what was uh, George like uh, to interview and what was he like, just period? In all fairness, I wrote the questions for the interview. Jack Whitaker did the interview. 
Okay. And I think the fact that Jack was coming out there was one of the reasons that the Bears agreed to do this because George was pretty far along in his life. And uh, I, I think he died within the year. But uh, just sitting in the man's presence, uh, you know, the very first book that I ever bought was the 1963 Pro Football Almanac. I bought that book with my own money so I could name my electric football team pieces. Steelers. <laughs> now, my next door neighbor, Joey Napshaw, was the Chicago Bears. And he won the, the, uh, the, the Bears won the NFL title that year and might have played my Steelers had they beaten the Giants in the game I referenced earlier. And I mentioned that to George Hallis and he, you know, it, when the camera was off and he just went on about that game, that was the last championship game he ever coached and won. And it was <laughs> his recollection of those things was remarkable, but we did have to submit questions in advance because of his age. And we were told that uh, uh, there's a one hall, the one guy who he always felt belonged in the hall of fame. And I tucked that question into uh, Jack's Whitaker's questions and he asked it Oh, and he was so happy to hear that. We didn't use it in the piece, but he was so happy to hear that question. And uh, what I remember most was at the end, he taught me, he sat with me and taught me how to pronounce his name in Armenian. Mm. Goethe Stanislas Halosh. <laughs> you know, I don't know how you remember that. But <laughs> no, I'm sitting with the founding father of the National Football League. My first book was Pro Football Almanac. I mean, at 10 years of age, I was obviously a pro football fan. You know, I wanted to name my electric football players to get them right. Yeah, and that's great. You know, that's kind of an obsessive, you know, almost obsessive personality when it came in, you know, to, to be sitting there in the room with George Hallis. Wow. And the other favorite thing there was, was, was how, asking him about, well, you know, you, you were the first George to play right field for the Yankees. The second one was George Herman Ruth the next year after you left. And he said, well, I don't know. I, I don't think I could have given him much of a fight for that position. <laughs> That's a great story. Another one of the many great stories in the book. I, I got a couple more questions, and then I'll turn it over to Dan to, to close our interview. You guys have done such a great job capturing the, the mythology of the Chicago Bears. In your book, I'm pretty sure I read this, you shot this image of Walter Payton in his final game uh, as yep. a Chicago Bear. Tell us about this moment. Well, I knew that was going to be his last game, and I was watching the Bears as they left the field, and I never saw Peyton go by me. And I said, he's got to be over here somewhere. And I turned around, and I ran over toward the bench, and there he was. He was sitting there, and he looked sad. I quickly snap-zoomed in, set my focus, and then pulled it back, and then did a slow push-in, knowing I only have one chance to get this shot don't blow it and there it is <laughs> it's beautiful it's beautiful oh. another another great shot I, I don't think you shot this one but you talk about this in the book the hands of dick butkus just t tell us about this i always thought steve sable shot this image because steve thought dick was the best football player to ever play the game at least on the defensive side of the ball and it just looked like one of those details that Steve Sable would recognize and, and shoot. Steve had that artistic vision and he, he, he saw things that other people didn't see, you know, bandaged, bloodied hands, mud. 
and it wasn't. It, Steve told me one day it was somebody else. Uh, he said, I'd, I'd like to take credit for it, but it wasn't me. <laughs> it's a great image. And I'll, I'll never forget there was an NFL films where Butkus was talking about that he looks across the, the sideline, across the field, and he spots somebody that's smiling, and he psychs himself up by saying, that guy is talking about my mother. I'm, I'm going to destroy him when I get on the field. <laughs> Dan, what do you got for Bob? <laughs> I was going to ask him uh, to give us a, a good Ditka story. Uh, um, you had to be around the 85 team or Jim McMahon's. Give, could you give us something from that era? I can. Um, Mike Ditka chewed his gum with ferocity. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. And Mike, you know, Mike grew up um, in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Neville Island, Pennsylvania. In between us was Ambridge, Pennsylvania, where my mother grew up. And then beyond Aliquippa was um, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, where Joe Namath hails from. Um, I, I, Mike went to Pitt. He was legendary at Pitt. And there was a sign that was in Aliquippa that said, Welcome to Aliquippa, home of Mike Ditka. You know, when he was in college. I mean... <laughs> Dude hadn't even made it to the NFL yet, and he was getting this kind of recognition. The year that the Bears won, and I almost put this in the book, but my, my personal interaction with Mike wasn't long and detailed enough to, to meet my, my criterion, which was I had to have a, a, a personal experience, an extended personal experience with the guy. But I, uh, I remember a play. He caught a pass against the Steelers, and he broke about three or four tackles until he just – Eventually, after all that work, rambling down the field, trampling Steelers, breaking tackles, shaking off tacklers, tacklers, he just fell to the fell to the turf, you know, and didn't score a touchdown. And that game ended in a tie. Uh, I remember that because um, I heard it on the radio. Uh, I, you know, games were blacked out in Pittsburgh, so I couldn't see it. But uh, I thought to myself, well, um, if geez, if they tie, they they have a chance. Um, Long story short, I did work with him one time um, uh, in his restaurant, and I shot him in the kitchen as he was examining those those center cut pork chops that they used to sell there at Ditka's. Oh God Almighty! You know, I eat pork chops like Homer Simpson, and I I love pork chops. And to see those three center cut pork chops, my one regret about working with Mike was I didn't have time to stay there that night. We had something else we had to do. So we had to leave, but I couldn't, I, I wanted to sit and order dinner. And, you know, Mike was just saying, eat whatever you want. Just tell, tell them it's on me, blah, blah, blah. Um, the other one thing I remember, a little thing, was uh, when he had the mini heart attack. Um, uh, I remember asking his wife about that. Uh, I interviewed her for this piece that I did with, with, with Mike. And uh, I, I was, uh, I remember her... <laughs> Her love and concern for her man. She wasn't reacting as a football fan. She was reacting as his wife and, you know, his partner. And uh, that touched me. And I thought, wow, a guy this big and gruff. And this woman really loves him. He, he, he's a good Western Pennsylvania boy. I like him. I got one more question for you. Sure. So as a person, admittedly, you've said you were a huge football fan before you got into this. Like, that's what led to you becoming a guy in NFL films. So did you ever have a, and I know you're a Pittsburgh partisan the way we are Chicago partisans, but team allegiance aside, 
Were you ever at a game, whether a championship game, a Super Bowl, something where you just felt like you, you like you saw a moment, like you were like you were so glad that you were there? I don't know, like with Walter Briggs, yeah. Jim Brown, just as an example. I'm not saying that's your moment, but did you have a moment where you were kind of like, "Wow, I, I saw that live." Yeah, my first Super Bowl was Super Bowl 13, and the Cowboys and the Steelers were going back and forth, back and forth. It looked as if when when Terry Bradshaw finally extracted his head from his derriere, it looked as if they were going to put this game away, but. You know, it didn't quite work out that way. And, you know, the, the, the Cowboys came back and poor Jackie Smith, the, the ball hit him right. The sickest man in America. Oh my God. The ball hit him right in the chest, right in the chest. And, you know, I, I was, I, I yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm, you know, I'm here to document the event. I'm not here to be a Steelers fan. Well, I, I can't sit on being, a Steelers fan for long. And especially when I'm in their presence and I'm rooting for them and I'm watching it happen when Jackie dropped that ball. And and then right after that, shortly thereafter, that is when uh, uh, the linebacker from the Cowboys, uh, Hollywood Henderson, mm. after a play, he, he uh, did something to Bradshaw and Franco Harris went, he just, he went after him. He went red and I could just see, you know, and on the next play, Terry handed Bradshaw the ball and he ran through the Cowboys like they weren't even there. Hmm. Oh God, what a moment. Th those two moments, you know, and then of course, you know, Swan catches the pass at the end and the game looks like a route, but it wasn't <laughs> until Jackie Smith booted that ball. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he dropped the ball, but at the same time, I'm thinking, Oh God, dude. Oh, Oh man. And later on, Again, out working with Irv Cross, you know, I we, we did a piece on Jackie Smith, the the forgotten Hall of Fame tight end, if he was. I think he was. And, yeah, um, and, and Irv, you know, asked him the question. And Irv looked at me, and I just kept shaking my head, like, no, keep going, keep going. Five or six questions in, Jackie was get, getting pissed off. All right, all right, Irv. You know, I, I've said about all – I've said all I'm going to say about that play, all right? And, you know, this was Jackie Smith talking to Irv Cross, defensive back. Don't F with me. Okay. <laughs> and I was looking at you. Done. We're done. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Bob, you are a treasure uh, to give us an hour of your time uh, and to share these remarkable stories. We are so very fortunate to have you on our show. And I got to tell everyone who is watching and listening on the audio podcast version of this show, this is an outstanding book for any football fan. Uh, Christmas time. Put this on your list. Ask for it or buy it for a friend, a family member. It's an outstanding book. Bob, any last uh, thoughts you want to sh share before we get you out of here? No, I mean, just I'm flattered by all this. I mean, I'm 70 years old now. I never set out to write a book. I did it by accident almost. Uh, and here it is. And now I'm learning all about publicity. And just thank you for you know, giving me an audience. I, I really appreciate this. I, uh, I gratitude. Um, again, this is one of those late in life things that is just kind of stimulating. Uh, and I'm learning how to do it and I'm enjoying it. 
And, uh, you know, it all goes back to that 1963 book where I wanted to, uh, you know, 1963 Pro Football Almanac, where I wanted to know who my Pittsburgh Steelers players were, my little electric football pieces on that Tudor game board so that I could announce the games. And I had my clay cameras set up around the field and I was televising the games. And it's all part of a path I guess I've always been on. And uh, at, after I heard John Facenda's voice, then I knew I knew I had to get there. I knew I had to for NFL, <laughs> which I did. Indeed. Well, many thanks again, and maybe we'll have you on again, maybe during the holidays and make that last push for the book to make sure uh, people put it on their Christmas trees this, this season. Please do. I would love to come back and you know talk a little bit about the NFC North because I have a lot of NFC North stories, most of which you probably don't want to hear because <laughs> yeah. I've been along with the Vikings for 25 years, and uh, there are quite a few Viking stories in the book, uh, but I'm watching the NFC North very closely this year. And unfortunately, Bears fans. Uh... It's not looking too good for us right here in Chicago. Yeah, I'd love to have you back just to get your thoughts on a good friend of yours, Leslie Frazier, because he might be a candidate for a head coaching position. The Bears might be looking for one in a season or two if things continue as they are. And of course, all of these NFC North uh, stories that you have, it would be a pleasure. So let's make that a, uh, a, a handshake. We'll have you on in November uh, or early December, and that way we can help sell some more books because it is really a tremendous read it's it's one of my prized possessions in my sports book uh library so again one more question absolutely as a fan bob you're again a steeler fan yes you right now we had to sit down and watch in its entirety the broadcast of any of the the four championships 9 10 13 or 14 what's your favorite game of those pittsburgh super bowls 13 that was because you were there you see in in super bowl nine i was in grad school at northwestern and I was watching the game upstairs in the home in which I was living with Dr. Uh, Jim and Dr. Jim Crawford and Dr. Sue Crawford and wonderful people. I hope they're both still with us. Uh, but but I had to work because I was still working for WNUR radio doing my pro football report. And so as, as I was watching the game and enjoying it, I had to write notes and, you know, kind of come up with what I was going to say that night when I went into the studio. Um, 13, I was just there. And it was my first Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl's an event. And the Steelers were there. And I grew up watching, you know, the the the, uh, the, the black and gold when they stunk, when they were horrible, when they, when they had never won anything. And now here they were trying to win their third Super Bowl in five years. And that that one, 13. All right. Well, the Rams game's really good too. Oh yes, it was. But um, it was. But I had a feeling Pittsburgh would figure out a way to be- beat Vince Ferragamo and uh, Jack Lambert. Right. <laughs> Jack picked off that, that pass over the middle, and you know, and, they, and the Steelers just rammed it right up their A. And it, it, that, I, I just had a feeling. Cowboys, I wasn't sure of. Cowboys, I thought, you know, both teams have won two Super Bowls this decade. This this could go either way. Roger Staubach is every bit as competent a quarterback as Terry Bradshaw because Bradshaw didn't really learn how to play football or didn't learn how to play the quarterback position consistently until about 1977 after mm-hmm. that 76 Raiders game, Raiders championship game defeat where it was clear the Steelers couldn't beat them throwing the ball because they just couldn't throw the ball. And that's right. when Terry took it upon himself. Hey, I got to learn how to throw deep, deep curls and, 
you know, deep uh, uh, in routes to Swan and Stallworth because they're not going to drop it. And I had the arm strength to get it there. And once he figured that out, you know, 77 by 78 and 9, Steelers are unstoppable. You know, in 10, I know you need to go, but look at it. I don't have to go. I I can stay here all night. (laughs) Uh, Dallas, I thought Dallas really had Super Bowl 10 and Landry kind of set on that 10 to 7 lead. Yeah. If If he, is a little less conservative. I think Dallas probably pulls off that upset in Super Bowl 10. They had a shot. Um, I think Pittsburgh's defensive unit was better than the Cowboys. And the Cowboys had a dozen rookies on that team. That, that was right. a young Cowboys team. Randy White was a rookie. All, all those guys, they were all rookies. They were. Uh, it was clear they were going to be good down the road. And in 77, they were when they beat Denver. And uh, that's why in 78, you know, that game could have gone either way. 75, yeah, Pittsburgh fell behind early. But once they caught up, once they got got their game together, I mean, Franco never pulled it together. But Bradshaw stood in there, took a couple of huge hits and, you know, delivered balls, um, you know, big throws. Big Swan throws. had a great game that day. Obviously, he's MVP. He did, and and Stallworth had a nice day. Swan, Swan was incredible. Stallworth, I think, played as well as he just didn't have that one circus catch in the middle of the field, and then that uh, you know the great catch that clinched it, the the game winner that everybody remembers. Right, Bob. You know, here in Chicago, um, w- many Bears fans, the majority of Bears fans, would really love to see the Bears on hard knocks. Why do you think the Bears? management is so adverse to having their team uh, invaded by the NFL cameras at Hallis Hall. Uh, Do you have any insight into that you'd like to share? Yeah, having done it twice, um, it's invasive. And one of the agreements made is that we have to have access. You know, total access is, is, it's bandied about all the time now, but total access isn't granted too often. The Ravens gave me access that was unbelievable and unprecedented. Brian trusted me anywhere I wanted to go, and pretty much so did uh, the the ownership, Ozzie Newsom, um, the Modell's family kind of welcomed us. Like, thank you. Thank you for coming here. We're a small market team. And Art Modell had a long history with NFL films. But that said, the invasiveness, because um, – as you can see, even Peyton Manning is out there trying to sell the second season of uh, quarterback and he can't find three quarterbacks, yeah. you know, and uh, Peyton Manning can't sell it. Well, you know, how the hell is NFL films going to sell it to to a pro football team? Coaches, head coaches, most of them, most of them still, despite, you know, trending younger, still kind of look at cameras in a locker room cameras at training camp, cameras anywhere where they're not supposed to be as distractions. Mm-hmm. The Ravens didn't. The Ravens welcomed us. We, I had HBO installed at their summer camp so they could watch the show. I wanted them to see what we were doing, and I wanted them to understand that we're not here to reveal dirty, dirty linen. We're here to show what grown men do when they're separated from their families and made to live in dormitories and, you know, play football all day for three or four weeks. You know, it's not pretty. It's, it's, it's kind of, and it, but it is fun. 
it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience to be part of. And that's what we were, that's what we set out to do. I, I kind of model it all after what I read in paper lion with George Plimpton. And I thought if I can get some of this stuff, well, hell we got, we got way more than that. Yeah. I mean, it's just that, that night, you know, the talent show. And, you know, I, I have to say, who knew that that one dude was going to be that good an actor and be able to, to nail Shannon Sharp. How about it? <laughs> he went ballistic a few times. He was wonderful. Do you you have a chapter here on Deacon Jones, right? I'm, I'm just yep. okay yep. Uh, because Mike Henneman is saying Deacon Jones was such a great NFL films character, and then writes this Deacon Jones describing the term he coined the sack mm -hmm. is such a classic. Yeah, I don't I don't remember that. Can you remind me? Uh, Deacon was interviewed and the single best interview that NFL films ever did with anybody ever was Deacon Jones. I didn't do it. I wish I could lay claim to it. I quoted it often in my book. Deacon said so many things. <laughs> I mean, I could outrun daylight. Um, you know, he said, Anytime you go upside a man's head or a woman, I mean, some of the things that came out of his mouth and I'm sitting there, thinking the man's completely unfiltered. This is just incredible. When Deacon would show up at golf events that we would shoot for various purposes, if the event was going to be a B, Deacon made it an A just by his presence. Everybody wanted to be around Deacon because they knew he was going to say something. He was going to do something. He was going to initiate a conversation that was just going to get out of hand. He was spectacular to be around and he was real. I mean, I wrote that, and this is true. He told me this. He said, I got to Los Angeles and there were so many Joneses in the damn phone book. And I, you know, and I, there were so many D Joneses in the damn phone book. He said, I got to come up with something different. And that's when he came up with Deacon. Wow. Deacon Jones. And <laughs> he, he was just special. He, he's yeah. one of those, one of those people who, I, everybody wanted to be around because you just never knew when something great was going to happen. Something mm. fun was going to happen. The you thing know? I retained uh, from the Deacon interviews from the NFL films, I remember him saying how much he hated Tarkenton. He was yeah. like, oh, the worst Sunday in the Coliseum would be chasing Fran Tarkenton around. He's like, you don't want to spend your Sunday chasing his ass around. That's <laughs> what that, I retained from, De from Deacon. Deacon said that. And you know what? Who You know who else said it? And again, another one of the stories that I toyed with, but I didn't put in, Merlin Olson. Merlin mm -hmm. Olson was the guy who said, you know, running around after that little SOB for three and a half hours. <laughs> you know, I wanted to kill him. If I ever caught him, you know, and this is Merlin Olson, Father Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> God-fearing yeah. Mormon man. I, I, want to, oh, I wanted to kill him. Yeah. Whoa, Deacon. Whoa, Merlin. My goodness. And he, that he, is wild. He told me that at his home, and I laughed out loud. I mean, it was wonderful. I just didn't have a, I didn't have enough of a personal thing with him to, to write about him, but uh, – yeah, Deacon and Merlin together. I mean, how, how many defensive lines have two Hall of Famers on the same line? I mean, yeah. there's Mike this year with McMichael and, um, you know. Hamp Hampton's already in and Dent is already in. And I, I've always felt the Steelers, you know, should it be Joe Green and L.C. Greenwood. And uh, the Vikings, of course, still have uh, Carl Eller and Alan Page. And Jim Marshall's not in somehow. Nah, he's not. He, he j God, that's horrible. You know, Marshall and I had uh, we spent a weekend one night in in uh, 
Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, One of my favorite stories. Please share. (laughs) It's in the book. I mean, Jim and I went out and Jim hadn't retired. He, he, He was newly retired. And Jim was a stud. I mean, Jim was just a stud. And he wanted us to go to um, Rochester because he wanted us to see uh, this campground where he used to go. And he wanted us to see the, uh, what's that that wonderful herb that grows in water? And it's got more nutrition than any green on the planet, uh, watercress. He wanted to take us to this pond that had watercress in it. And when he took us there, I said, "What, what, what are we supposed to do here? You know, we can't go in there and pick the stuff. I mean, it, the water's three feet deep. I mean, I just wanted you to see it. Oh, oh great. But we went out one night and uh, he was young and, you know, and still, and he, we couldn't buy a drink all night. I said, Jim, I got to leave. I'm just letting you know our call time is so-and-so, so-and-so. I never expected to see him the next morning. Well, silly me. I mean, this guy's a veteran. <laughs> having a few uh, adult beverages and showing up ready to play, you know? Oh, I love it. <laughs> there he was when I, I had him frying eggs over a fire out in the middle of nowhere, you know? And uh, and he finally said, what are you doing here, Bob? He said, don't worry. Just like I told her across, don't worry about this. You'll love it. You'll love it. And CBS loved the piece. I, I used footage of him skydiving, footage of him in the Grand Teton Mountains where he almost died. Um, you know, CBS loved the piece and so did Jim. That my, is great. My favorite NFL films, and again, I'm a Bears fan, but we only made it to one back then. But my favorite NFL film, Super Bowl, like, you know, memory, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, their 30 minute, you know, Steve Sable inter- uh, would do the intro and they'd go to the game. I thought the Vikings uh, and Raiders, Super Bowl 11, was like the yeah. best highlight that they did. Yeah. And just with all the sunshine of the game, too, it just, it was so perfect. The narration, the music, the whole yeah. thing, 11 was my favorite of the highlights. Yeah, that was a good one. That, that was a great one. John Facenda narrated. Uh, Willie Brown had that incredible old man inter- Willie interception return. And Ernie Ernst, one of our cameramen who specialized in tight lens, following focus, the length of the field. He, he had enough sunlight that day to get it. He got it all. And, you know, Ernie's been gone a few years now, but I'm, you know, every now and then I see that shot and I think of Ernie who taught everybody at NFL films, how to be better cinematographers. Uh, yeah, that, that was, you all got Chuck Foreman crying on the sidelines too. Oh uh, yeah. This is a oh, brilliant yeah. shot. Yeah. And we have, uh, we have Madden being elevated and, uh, I, you know, uh, the, the Raiders announcer saying he's smiling like a split watermelon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> King, King, uh, uh, BG one forty seven wants to know what was Hank Stram like. Look, I pronounced it correctly, Hank Stram. <laughs> well, if John Descender would have said Hank Stram. <laughs> yeah. Hank was um, wow, uh, what an ego. <laughs> I mean, the the man dressed the part. He 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 walked the walk. He was uh, he was a great coach. Uh, he invented the moving pocket. I think um, he. Turned Lenny Dawson into a champion. Um, he was one of the best Super Bowl wirings ever. Super Bowl four. I mean, some of the some of those lines. Um, <laughs> him arguing with the official about the spot. Him. Him. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just on and on and on. And after Otis Taylor scores the eventual game clinching touchdown, 
That's it, rats. That's it, boys. That's it, rats. He called his players rats. That's it, rats. That's it, boys. The mentor. The mentor. 65 toss power trap. Blah, blah, yeah, blah. toss power trap. That was, was, uh, that was uh, the little dude running back uh, in Southern Cal. Mike Aaron. That was Mike Aaron on the 65 toss power trap. But I mean, hey, the mentor pumped it in there, boys. Bob, I heard this story. Tell me if it's true that um, he got mic'd up and he, none of the players knew about it. And the players were like wondering, why is he so talkative? I mean, this is the Super Bowl game, but he never talks this much. Is this true? <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, two things. Um, the players did not know he was wired. And number two, he always talked like that. Okay. He always talked like that. According to Steve... He was loquacious, to use a kind word of describing it. <laughs> he was, you know, he just liked to hear himself think out loud. <laughs> yeah. that, that, this is according to Steve's table, and I'm going to go with Steve's version because that's how I knew him. I mean, when I met him for the first time, working with him when he took over as head coach of the New Orleans Saints, mm -hmm. um, he could <laughs> – he could talk a blue streak. I mean, he, he just, you know, he, he had opinions about everything and everybody. And uh, yeah, interesting man. Very interesting man. Um, yeah. I did a piece once where I interviewed Steve or Ed Sable, Mr. Sable, uh, Steve's yeah. father, faced one direction and Hank Stram faced the other direction. And I intercut the two as they talked about the wiring. Oh, cool. And that was a good one. That was a good one. Um, yeah. I, I just wish I had a little bit more to say about Hank. I, I actually drove across Lake Pontchartrain once to go out to his home. He lived way the hell out there uh, on, a, on an island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Hank I know you're a Pittsburgh guy, but what about what, – can you tell us an interaction with Al Davis? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Al had a short uh, period where he would allow you to film him. And while I would film him, he would always hold up his hand and he always had the Super Bowl ring right there. Uh, was always, you know, about that big. And, you know, and he'd wait for you to get the shot and then, all right, all right, get out of here, get out of here. That's enough. That's enough. Um, Al was, you know, Al was, um, he was a football coach, you know, before he became the Raiders owner. I, I'm still not sure how he acquired that team, but he was a coach and, when it came to vertical passing game, you know, between he and Sid Gilman, that's where that came from. That's, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's where that came from. And Al liked to stretch the field. Uh, I respected that side of him, but, uh, you know, um, the way the Raiders played sometimes, um, you know, cheap shots, things that don't belong in the game, really. Um no, nah, that, that part of it. I happened to be in the lobby of the hotel where the Raiders were staying the day that Al Davis died. And wow. the Raiders were all in the bar talking about him. And I listened in as, as well as I could. And uh, Tom Flores was there. Tom was um, just, he was loosely connected with the team still. He wasn't the head coach. But uh, I remember him saying things about Al, you know, Blowing things. I mean, the people for whom uh, the people who played for Al loved him. I think except Marcus Allen. Except Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> except Marcus Allen. Absolutely. I mean, Marcus. Oh boy, that was ugly. That was an ugly breakup. 
<laughs> but you know what? You know what? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, deservedly so. I mean, Al, a lot of people didn't like him just as a matter of fact. I gave him uh, the chance to, to to be a nice guy, and then then I decided I didn't like him that much. Mm. Well, yeah, to bring it full circle real quick, Aldo, sorry to interrupt you. No, that's okay. I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, he's he's passed on since. But Todd Christensen, who, of course, was the tight end for the Raiders. Yeah. He said he always told the story that when he watched the Super Bowl 18 highlights that was made by NFL Films, when Facenda says, and on came Marcus Allen running with the night, that every time he saw that, it made him cry. Uh, yeah. that that Todd was that kind of guy. Uh, when Andrea Kramer first started out, she worked at NFL Films, and I was the person who wanted to put her on camera, first of all. And we did that in 1989, and uh, one of the first pieces I directed for her was with Todd Christensen. And it was interesting. We shot him in New England in a hotel room, and Andrea was interviewing him. <laughs> and I said, Andrea, here's an idea. Why don't you... Um, write this thing as if you're his counselor, his psychiatrist, as, 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 and she did. And it got a lot of laughs. I, I, I really like that. Uh, but Christensen could more than carry a conversation. He was a, uh, an introspective, reflective, smart, smart guy. guy. He was yeah. a very bright <laughs> guy. And, uh, it, you know, between the two of them, I mean, Andrea was, you know, is five foot one soaking, you know, five foot one standing on a, on a, on a milk car, milk, milk crate. And Todd was what, six, three, six, you know, big, big guy. The two of them standing side by side was kind of comical. Um, but turned out to be a nice segment. Um, and after that, I liked him. I thought, yeah, yeah, you're okay. You know, one more thing. I, I've been saying that a bunch, but one That's of the okay. things NFL films did that was so good, I thought, and it kind of, I don't, I thought they should have done more was uh, the missing rings segment with the teams that lost the Super Bowl. I thought yeah. that was great. The America's game, but for the teams yeah. that lost, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, wow. Uh, the Vikings one was the one that really hurt me because, The, you the know, Joe Cap one or the 98? No, the, the, the 98 team because they yeah. lost one game. And that year I shot probably a dozen Viking games, including the one they lost in Tampa. And uh, by the time that team got – into the championship game. They had so many banged up players, but they should have beaten the Falcons. They, they had, they were 14 and two, the Falcons, everyone always forgets that. All the Vikings had to do Robert Smith. If he doesn't go out of bounds, uh, Robert Griffith, if he doesn't drop the interception, uh, Gary Anderson, Gary Anderson. Yeah. Makes the field. If he doesn't miss the 30, what 37 yarder. He hadn't missed one all season. Year and a half. It, yeah. it, the, wow. the streak actually went into the season before that. Uh, and it, then he, that's the one he misses. Oh God. As a bear fan, I was very happy. that day. I'm sure you were, but the Vikings would have matched up very well against the Broncos. I don't know that the Broncos defenses de defense had enough horses to stop those guys. I mean, that was the year they had Randy as a rookie, yeah. Chris Carter as a veteran and Jake Reed was on that team. Their tight end was a great big stud and you know, Robert Smith out of the backfield that the team had and Randall Cunningham. Oh God! Well, uh, no, Randall was. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's that was Randall's year. That was Randall's year. My goodness, yeah. And Randall had a great season because you know he would just toss up jump balls to Randy Moss, and when Randy was covered, you know, too deep downfield, and it was a jump ball advantage, Moss. Right. You know, as a rookie, he had that spring in his legs. He was a basketball player too, and man, that dude could. 
you know, out of all the great receivers, Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, the guys with the big numbers, Chris Carter as well. But out of all the great receivers, I said I think that Randy had the best overall skill set. He didn't take care of his body the way Jerry Rice did, and you know he didn't have the uh, the, the brute strength that Terrell Owens did. But man, Randy had the package. Jesus, he, he was. And as a Bear fan, I don't know if you knew the story was that they they sent Walter to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Walter hadn't died yet, and Randy overslept the meeting, so the Bears oh. drafted Curtis Enos. And I grew up an hour away from Randy here in West Virginia, so I oh. wanted him with the Bears so badly. He well, misses the meeting, and then we don't draft him. Well, Denny Green didn't hesitate. I mean, when after that pick before, they, they ran to the podium to make <laughs> sure that the team before them didn't change their mind because uh, they, they made up their mind they were going to take him, and it was a good move. Chris Carter was there. Chris could counsel him. But, you know, Randy is still Randy. He, he's I think he's great on television because he allows himself to be himself. He's a, you know, kind of loud, cantankerous, uh, uh, combative guy who has moods. I mean, sometimes he's in a good one. Sometimes he ain't. And when he is not in a good mood, he's, he was no fun to be around on game day. But when he was, he was a pleasure. And God almighty, I've never seen such talent built into one body. I mean, maybe the guy in Detroit had that kind of talent too. He, he was a great receiver. Um, There's this uh, video short going around on YouTube where uh, Julian Edelman is talking about one of his encounters with Randy. And, and he says, I was always trying to be nice to Randy. You know, Randy was, was not the nicest guy. And one day I walk by and I see that Randy is talking to his mom on the phone and he goes, Hey, Randy, tell your mom I said hi. And Randy Moss puts the phone down and says, uh, shut your fucking mouth, man. <laughs> it's, it's like- yeah, that's Randy. That's Randy. I mean, he's I'm surprised he doesn't drop an F-bomb, you know, on, on TV. <laughs> yeah, I, I wondered he, that too. <laughs> he, Randy is uh he's he he's uh, but be, because I was traveling with the Vikings and because he put them over the top, they don't go to that. They don't go to the championship game that year without Randy Moss. They just, they don't, they simply don't. He made the, excuse me. He made the difference. Um, And, you know, everyone said, boy, can you imagine Moss with Tom Brady? Well, it happened. And And they they both missed the Super Bowl. (laughs) Yeah. And they both set records. And, you know, that, that touchdown prior to my favorite soundbite of all time that I ever got uh, could have, should have won the game. But then mm-hmm. Michael Strahan wandered over to the Viking offensive line or the uh, giant offensive lineman and said, gentlemen, the final score is going to be uh, 17 to 13 or whatever, 17 to 13. You guys are going to get the ball. You're going to take it down the field. You're going to score a touchdown and we're going to win the game 17 to 13. And I walked away from that. I turned to my sound man. And I said, yeah, fat effing chance that happens. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, David Tyree pins the ball to his helmet. And Harrison stands there and lets him do it. And Plax is open in the corner. And and even then, I still thought, now, nah, Brady's going to find a way. And, you know, if you look at that last throw down the middle, I mean, uh, Gronk almost, you know, almost had that thing. Yep, but, uh, indeed. But Michael Strahan predicted it. And I, then I realized, oh, boy, that sound bite, that's going to be worth something. You know, hmm. uh, that's going to be seen a few times. Bob, one of the reasons I, I fell in love with uh, NFL films, watching it as a kid, was was the writing, as you've talked about. And, you know, there was 
great lines like Vince Lombardi, a certain magic still lingers in the very name. And uh, be savage. Go, go forward and fight them. Be savage again. You know, yep. just great stuff. Yep. What line did you write that you look upon fondly and said, that's one of my favorite lines? Uh, I wrote a line once. Uh, I was doing a video about two titans in the in the business world and i wrote a line about their earned kinship uh because they work together and everybody was like applauding me patting me on the back that's a great line i want to know what's your favorite line the second line of the 1979 pittsburgh steeler highlight film you see the steelers come out of the locker room you see them walking down that tunnel you see a second shot of them walking down the tunnel you see a third shot of franco harris walking by the the yard markers as he walked toward the entrance to the field. The music is very dramatic and very. And John Facenda says, there are 27 teams in pro football. And then there are the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> John nailed the line. I thought about this opening about, Right after Thanksgiving, I thought if the Steelers go back to the Super Bowl, I have to come up with an opening that just – and I did. I, we, we shot a bus, a random bus uh, on the freeway. We shot from inside a van with the windshield wipers working in the snow to make it look like the same bus. And then we shot a third bus outside the stadium. And I talked about the, – the, John's first line in the film was something like, put yourself in this difficult situation. You're a pro football player. Your team is on the road, and your team bus has just pulled up outside Pittsburgh's Three Rivers Stadium. And the next thing you see is the Steelers starting out of the locker room. And uh, wow. John delivered that line, and oh, <laughs> to this day, I mean, I think uh, they, they were going to use it on uh, Good Morning Football, but instead they used something else. I forget. No, actually, they did use it on Good Morning Football. I, I love the way you recall it too. It's like you're you were almost reading the script for us. That's beautiful. John nailed it. Bob, do you have the temerity to admit that the play with Franco in '72, the Raiders were screwed? Uh, I can't tell. I can't tell. I mean, you didn't have footage in the NFL films that no, could have given us something better there. We have nothing. We have Ernie Ernst's shot of Franco coming downfield and just spotting the ball. And, you know, his eyes get large. He reaches down, picks it up and catches it and runs it in another tight lens shot where he had to uh, rack focus as Franco was running all of our other shots, because we all missed it. Uh, our top cameraman, you know, lingered there on the collision and then panned right and found Franco all the other, no one else got it because it was fourth and 20. Game was I don't over. think Tatum touched the ball either. Back then, you know, the defender would have had to have touched it to go from Frenchie to Franco. And, I, I, and there's a clip on the play. I always thought Oakland really got job there. I honestly, honestly, I, I asked Franco. I asked um, Frenchie Fuqua. I made a trip to Detroit where Frenchie Fuqua was working for the Parks Department or something like that. And I asked him point blank. I said, did the ball hit you? And he said, I'll never tell. <laughs> I said, come on. When the camera was off, off camera, I said, did the ball hit you? And he said, I honestly don't know. I was reaching for the ball. I got plowed from behind by Jack Tatum. And, you know, I was more concerned with how I was going to land 
And the next thing I hear is the crowd roar, and I turn around, and Frank goes in the end zone with the ball. Did you hear what Madden said? It was somewhere around 87-8. I know you worked for them then. Madden on, on like a VHS tape was said that the officials went into the dugout, like the Pittsburgh Pirates dugout. Yes, they did. And was on the phone for five minutes. He said he yeah. called the police and said, how many uh, officers do you have to get me out of here if I say this is not a touchdown? And then he said, whatever the answer was, and the official emerges and says, touchdown. <laughs> I heard that story. Al Ocasal used to tell that story. I, I, I don't. Are you sure they came from Madden, or was that? Oh, Al? I've, seen, I've got the VHS tape with Madden saying it. Yes. Okay, then uh, uh, Al Ocasal is where I heard it for the first time. Al was the PR man slash uh, uh, Gestapo boss for the Raiders for a long time, and, and Al, told, <laughs> Al told that story at lunch one day, and I was sitting there. Me and Andrea were sitting with him, and I, what I remember about that is we're having Chinese food. Now had a Fu Manchu. And there was there was low mane just hanging in his beard. <laughs> but when he told us that story, he you know he looked at me. He said, well, "You're from Pittsburgh," and I said, "I don't know." I asked Fuqua. Franco didn't know because Franco was just running downfield because he was on a biorhythmic high, as I pointed out that day in, in the book. <laughs> and the ball bounced off, and he you know, there it was, and he grabbed it. And I was concerned as a Steeler fan. I was thinking, "Get out of bounds! Get out of bounds! Get out! Keep going!" You know when I realized. <laughs> It seemed to have the side angle as he came after him. And Phil mm -hmm. Villabiano, I think, what, is, was he the guy who got clipped? Yes. He was. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, Phil told the story. And, of course, you know, Phil is uh, very, very vindictive about it, which is fine. I mean, you know. They, For sure. The Raiders, the Raiders got jobbed several times in the postseason. You know, yeah, the one that Madden said that he couldn't take it anymore, he knew that he was going to get out of coaching, was that Rob Lytle fumble in the 77 championship game. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. I just can't take this shit anymore. I'm so tired <laughs> of getting jobbed on these calls. And then after one, after the next season, he retired. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's hard to coach longer than a decade. The guys who can do that, they're, they're pretty amazing. Uh, it's hard to do that every single week. You just run out of stuff to say, mm -hmm. you know, you run out of ways to motivate your team. I mean, Don Shula, if you listen to, you know, the speech he used to give to his team prior, you know, when he first started coaching with, with the Colts first and then with the Dolphins, and then listen to the last speech that he gave, it's almost the same one. He just ran out of new stuff to say. And you get stale after a while and you get burned out. I mean, when Dick Vermeil left Philadelphia when I was here, I mean, he, you know, he, he wept as he was leaving. Of course, Dick wept a lot because he, <laughs> yes, he, he was an emotional man. He, you know, he, yeah. he wore his feelings very close to the surface. And, uh, but he, he took things seriously and, and he, and uh, uh, it's hard after a while, you know, I mean, when, when uh, Andy Reed got fired here and he took a coaching job with the Chiefs just a few days later, I said, Andy, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. You're, you're burned out. Your, your son lost his life, you know, committed suicide. You're, 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 uh, you're going back to coaching right after you got fired from one situation where it just ended badly. It ended badly here and don't do it. And he did. And I, and those guys who can last that long and win that many games, they're special. You know, there, there aren't many of them. That's and very he, true. And, Steve, me, who is watching live from Europe, asked a question. Uh, can you ask Bob about NFL films giving the Cowboys the moniker America's team? Is that true? I didn't know it was an, an NFL film. It was. Uh, it was Bob Ryan 
the producer of the Cowboys highlight for as long as I was there. Mm. So Bob retired. And it was the 19, I think it was the 1978 Cowboys highlight. Not uh, It was the 78 team that played the Steelers in the Super Bowl, thir- Super mm-hmm. Bowl 13. And he basically, he came up with the name not because he thought that, that uh, America loved the Dallas Cowboys. It was because they appeared on national television or seemed to appear on national television more than most teams because of, you know, being in Dallas, they played a lot of later games and they would be on the, on, on a lot uh, that they had recognizable faces, Roger Staubach, Tom Landry, uh, Tony Dorsett, uh, you know, faces, who, Bob Lilly, pe- people who, you know, America recognized and, and three, um, you couldn't be neutral toward the Cowboys. You either loved them or you hated them. So he came up with the title America's team. And I don't, I don't know that the Cowboys liked it at first. Uh, you know, I know the Steelers rejected a few of my titles, but um, he made it stick. He wrote it. And when it came out, you know, that's where it happened. 1978, Bob Ryan came up with it one day and, you know, faces as familiar and John Facenda reading the line faces as familiar as, presidents and uh, world leaders, you know, and he, he did a montage of Landry and Staubach and Hollywood Henderson was in there too. I thought, Ooh, really? Hollywood? Are you kidding? But uh, you know, <laughs> you know Hollywood by that had quite a reputation. He was, he was pretty damn well known. Yeah. Uh, Jim McMahon talked about that narrative of the America's team and said that his favorite win in the 85 season was beating Dallas, even though Fuller played the game but when the Bears won 44 nothing, he's like, I just hated the Cowboys because of America's team. Yeah. He's like, oh, I just yeah. hated their moniker. And he's like, I was so glad to beat them like that. Yeah. I think a lot of teams felt that way for a long time because the Cowboys still hold the NFL all-time record for consecutive winning seasons. And it may never be broken now, again, because of free agency and the fact that it's it's hard to keep great rosters together for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even the Patriots couldn't catch it. Even the Patriots couldn't uh, equal it. And, you know, those Patriots teams with Tom Brady, they were pretty damn good for a long time. Well, Zach- our are about to set a new record for consecutive losses, I think. Yeah, so. that's why Zach <laughs> wants to know, uh, what's the nickname? What nickname would you give today's Bears? And he says, come on, we can take it, Bob Angelo. Give it to us straight. What nickname would you give the Bears of today? <laughs> oh, <laughs> boy, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, we might be wearing brown paper bags here pretty soon. That's getting that I, bag. I, I, don't, I don't like to come up with things like that because – I, I, it takes me a while to come up with them usually. And I I just watch a little bit of the bears game. And when Justin Fields threw that pick, I thought, Oh dude, come on, come on. You gotta be better than that. You can't just give the game away, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, I have a thing with running quarterbacks. You know, I, in my blog two weeks ago, I wrote, or yeah, two weeks ago, I wrote no running quarterback has ever won a Super Bowl. And I don't count Steve Young because by the time Steve won his Super Bowl, he threw six touchdown passes in the game. He'd be, become an accomplished passer. Um, Lamar Jackson almost got it. Pardon me? Steve McNair almost got it one yard short. Yeah. He was a running quarterback at one point. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. 
I hear you. Um, but again, and you know, I, I look at uh, Lamar Jackson, and he spent the last two Decembers, you know, with a cast. Right. You know, uh, I look at your guy. I look at Justin Fields, and I think great runner, great runner. But you know, is he a quarterback or is he a tight end? I mean, can he read coverages? Can he do a pre-snap? Can does he can he recognize zone and or man or or combo? Can he see? Does he know where he's looking when he looks downfield? Does he recognize what he sees? I I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, at Ohio State, you didn't have to, but in the NFL, you have to be able to see the coverage, know where you should not throw the ball. You know, and I always get back to Paul Brown with this. I want three things out of my quarterback. I want him to be able to throw a spiral. I want him to be able to throw a spiral to somebody on my team. And I want him not to throw a spiral to somebody on the other team. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you got to learn that if you're playing. I mean, I look at the guy in Buffalo and I think, dude, rate it in. Stop losing team games for your team. You know, and no, it's, it's not all one man's fault, but – Lots of times it almost is, you know, a quarterback who is taking those kinds of chances so often, you know, you can't throw the ball in a double coverage like you used to do when you were playing in, uh, you know, at, at, at a scrimmage at Wyoming. You can't do that anymore, man. Who do you think, because uh, there's a lot of recency bias when people talk about great quarterbacks. I would always wave the flag for John Elway, for example. A lot of people forget how great Elway was. And, of course, he started out as a running quarterback. In your experiences of being at the games, who would you yeah. say is, like, the forgotten guy that was, like, really, really great? Somebody like Fouts, maybe, that people, like, don't remember? Well, um, for a short period of time, Burt Jones was as good as anybody I saw play in that period in the mid-'70s. Right. Um, Bradshaw at the end, he was with, with Swan and Stallworth. He, they were almost unstoppable. Um, you know, the, 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 the big names. I mean, I, I watched Unitas when I was growing up and, and I saw a little bit of him at films, but not much. Um, Otto Graham. I worked with Otto many, many times. I've reviewed Cleveland Browns footage from the forties uh, uh, into the fifties many times. Um, for many, for so long, I, I, I said, sorry, guys, Joe Montana won four Super Bowls. He should have been MVP of all of them, not just three. Jerry Rice made one great catch and run in that game, but Montana threw the ball, um, until Brady did what he did. I mean, he, seven Super Bowls. I mean, my goodness. Now Brady to me, I called him cry Brady. Because, you know, he was like a forward driving, the, or a, a small forward driving the lane. You know, where's the flag? Where's the flag? Well, Montana used to get his clock clean, you know. And he'd get up off the ground and uh, come back and win the game. And Bill Walsh told me this once, and this always stuck with me. The difference between Steve Young and Joe Montana. Steve is always trying to figure, what, what do I need to do to win the, to win the game? Joe would always ask himself, who can I get the ball to to help us win this game? That was the difference between them until, you know, Steve matured. I didn't really answer the question. I mean, you hit it. You hit it. I mean, Elway was really a, a skilled quarterback. But for much of his career, he played from behind. And that was his fault. He, he got his team behind a lot. 
because he was doing things Dan Reeves way. When Mike Shanahan came in there and gave him a running back and, a, and an offensive system that he could depend on and suddenly play fakes mattered. Amazing how quickly he became a great quarterback. I look at uh, Russ Wilson. Russ Wilson is the same guy, except two generations later. Seahawks always played from behind because Russ would have a lot of three and outs. Russ would try to do too much and not get it done. And then he'd have to rally his team in the fourth quarter, which he was great at doing. Um, I like the quarterbacks who come out at the very beginning of the game and just dominate, you know, and that's what Brady did. That's what Montana did in San Francisco when they had that great West coast offense working and he had all the skilled people to support it. Um, that's what young did after him. Once he figured out how to play quarterback and stop trying to, you know, be the, uh, the, the Burger King, um, you know, guy galloping down the field. Remember that commercial? <laughs> yes. uh, cool. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but you know, I mean, old guys, I mean, John Brody was a great quarterback. Um, Good announcer too. Yeah. I, you know, modern era. Um, geez, I don't know. I think, I think they all get their due. I mean, I look at the kid in San Diego and I think, boy, if they could find a, handful of defensive players to put on that team when you're, when you're sitting on the bench. I mean, cause this guy just, he's got every throw. He's got every single throw. He can throw a frozen rope. He can put air under it. He can swing it out to a back and he can do it under pressure. Do you guys remember that game two years ago where he had fourth down three different times on the last drive and he yeah. put the ball in the end zone on the last play from Holy Toledo. I mean, yeah, he's special. He, he's got a great arm. I, I don't think the ball comes out of anyone's hands ever the way it comes out of uh, Justin Justin Herbert's hand. I mean, it, you know, every 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 ball he throws, he throws a little too much, but he'll figure that out. I think. <laughs> well, I came up with my own nickname for the Chicago Bears, uh, Meatheads of the Midway. Do you think <laughs> John? You think John Facenda could ride that pony? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the meatheads of the midway. Yeah, John, would, John would ride that horse for you. He would. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We, now we're going to let you go, and then we'll close the show. Uh, Bob Angelo, it has been fantastic having you on, and I'm going to be bugging you. I've I've got your email now. In about three or four weeks, I'm going to call you. We're going to set another date and have another long chat, okay? Count me in. All right. Bob, one more question. One more question. You got if it. Charles Martin doesn't do the cheap shot on McMahon, do the Bears go back-to-back? -back? Read my lips. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Washington was 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 strong that, that year, but they could have been had. They could have been had. Uh, as I recall, I shot that game. As I recall, it took a, a punt return. Was it a punt return or a? I think that's Washington. the Dickel Green game in '87. '86 yeah. is when Doug Flutie played for us and they beat us. Okay. Oh, McMahon was hurt. Yeah, it was Daryl Green, right? Daryl Green. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Daryl Green ran back at an interception, and yeah, I I think if if Jimmy Max on the field, uh, yeah, I think they go back to back. Plus, um, I, I McMahon was one of the stories I took out too. 
I, I had I did have enough to write about him, but the editor uh, wanted it to come down from 101,000 words to 92,000. And that's one of the stories I took out. But Jimmy Mack was a trip to be around. We used to do this thing in Hawaii called the Beach Bowl. And it only lasted one year, actually, maybe a second year, but because uh, a Patriot running back got hurt there leaping for a ball. And but the, the year I did it, the year I directed it, uh, McMahon played opposite Warren Moon. And I've never seen anybody throw the ball better than Warren Moon, except for some of the guys I just mentioned. Warren had the prettiest ball I've ever seen, just always a perfect tight spiral. And Jimmy Mack brought two six-packs out and, and plunked them down on, on the sand and eventually wound up with a cut that might have needed stitches as they were playing in this game. And I thought, dude, <laughs> we're, we're, we're supposed to be having fun out here. and You're bleeding all over the sand. And, uh, you know, Warren Warren just – just they, they – tore Warren tore it up with his guys and uh but uh I went to his home once and that was fun he he had this old antique car that he uh wanted me to admire which I did you know <laughs> kind of cool but he was fun to be around I love his t-shirt um you've just arrived in Salt Lake City set your watch back 20 years <laughs> <laughs> that's the amazing thing about talking with you Bob I mean we spent 90 minutes, 100 minutes talking. And I know we've got hours and hours of more things that we can talk about and get your stories and, and you, you know, provoke some uh, thoughts in our minds that are just going to keep the conversation going. This has been really great, Bob. Yeah, I've Thank seen you. a lot of stuff. Yes, you have. And you're a very young man. I mean, when I saw you on Good Morning Football, it looked like you just got out of the gym. You, you're in great well, shape. I, I work out. I work out regularly. I, uh, I take pride in that. Always have. Good yeah. for you. One last question. I got one last question. So you start <laughs> off as a writer editor uh, and then you pick up the camera. Did you have cameraman experience or was this learning on the job? No, I, I, I was I went from writer editor year one to producer director year two to everything year three. I, I played quarterback wow. in high school and I looked around at the people who were going places at NFL films and invariably they were former high school and or college football players. Uh, and I said, okay, well, I played in high school. I got recruited by a few schools um, and I want to shoot. And uh, my only experience was at Northwestern. I shot a piece on leaves when uh, Evanston, when all those elm trees, the leaves would fall. Yes. I, you know, I drove all over the town getting pictures of leaves getting sucked up and raped and swept and, <laughs> I, I went to the uh, place where they took them all for disposal. And, uh, but I did a hand wine bell and how, and I got some nice images. You know, I, I got some nice images and I thought I can do this, you know, oh, and there again, I, I had good, good role models at NFL films, people who did do it well. And I just studied what they did and, and try, try to improve upon it. Well, good. That'll, that's a good tease for our, our next uh, get together. I want to talk about the visual aspects of NFL films, some of your secrets uh, of uh, getting the right shot. I used to work with a guy at WBBM TV here in Chicago named Chuck Davidson. Maybe you ran into him when you were covering games at Soldier Field, but he had uh, only eyesight in one eye and it was the eye, the viewfinders here. And so he had to look at it like here. So he didn't have any peripheral vision of what was going on, but he was one of the best cameramen 
and in football because he knew football so well. And it got to the point where every other cameraman in the city was following Chuck <laughs> because he was positioning himself for where the ball or the play yeah. was going to be. Uh, he just that happened to me a lot. That happened to me a lot. But I learned it from Bob Smith and Howard Neef and the guys before me. I learned it from them. Wow. And like I said, you know, do what they do because they've been doing it longer than you. And, uh, you know, then I just worked on my own technique. And right. You add your own uh, thing to it. But I, you know, positioning as, as a former quarterback, I could always read momentum and say, okay, this team is not going to throw the ball because they're, they, they, they can't protect their quarterback. I'm going to line up in the backfield and get the sack rather mm -hmm. than incomplete pass downfield, you know, like that. And, uh, you know, just after a while, you know, always have to work around the bench area. So eventually you have to make that big move. When do you make that move? And, uh, once I started caught on to that, then it became, okay, now let's move it down to the end zone where it's a lot easier, where it's just in lifting the camera sometimes and dropping it back down as opposed to east, west, you know, mm -hmm. or vice versa. So. Well, well, if you were shooting the Bears-Chiefs game Sunday when the Bears have the ball, I know where you'd be lining up. <laughs> I would be waiting for the quarterback to take off running. Yeah, he's gonna. Well, that's the thing about what's happening with him now. He can't even run now because defenses know they're just boxing him in, into the pocket. Go ahead, try to beat us from the pocket. You can't throw. No, so if he, if he's buying with a linebacker, you know, a big, strong guy who just that, that's his job. Your job yeah. in this play is not to let this guy out, out of here. Yeah, it, that becomes hard to do. It's right. really hard to play the position unless you have that threat of throwing. I mean, in, in the blog I wrote today, this is the last thing I'll, I'll say here. Uh, a blog I wrote today, I said. Lamar Jackson is the exception. He has to throw the ball and complete passes so that he can get defenders turned around so mm. that he keeps these defensive linemen, you know, rushing him because if he can complete balls downfield as he's doing this year, that makes it easier for him to run. And now he can really pick his spots and he'll have a lot fewer people in his way because in man coverage, their backs are turned. And, you know, once they run by him, you know, he's gone. And then he's only got one or two people to beat and advantage Lamar because I think he's the most electric runner in the league today. Where can people find your blog? Uh, it's at www.bobangelo.com. Real go. simple. Real simple. Very simple. Uh, all right. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon, and we'll have you back on very, very soon, okay? Thank you very much, guys. I, I appreciate the call. I look forward to coming back. All right, great. That's Bob Angelo, author of The NFL Off-Camera. Uh, I bought my copy at Amazon. You can probably go to bobangelo.com and find out where you can get your copy. Take care, Bob. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yes, sir. That was fantastic. Fantastic. And we didn't fantastic. have to talk about this shitty-ass Bears team. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> we didn't even have to listen to all the pundits, uh, you know. <laughs> pontificating as the other dan says <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, what what really struck out to you about the interview oh just the guy's passion and his recall and he's like he's a titan and he's been with everybody yeah. again with the both of the sables and has been shooting all the games and at mm -hmm. super bowls and you know, like it's always like you had access to all this footage. Like, what it, did you ever just go in and sit down and watch? You know, that's I mean, a great question. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just the fact that he was omnipresent mm -hmm. for everything. Like he said, from Super Bowl 13 until like, you know, 
50 or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dude's run is impeccable. So, yeah, we could talk to him for like, it could be like the sun could be coming up and we'd still be like, oh, by the way, we, you know, what about this? <laughs> if there weren't time constraints is what I'm saying. If people yeah. had their lives and jobs and we could just keep talking for hours with them. So, yeah, it was fun. I, I love the Bears, but I've been in, in agony over the first two games. And I, I suspect the third is going to be a little bit similar. I hope not. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that was a good break, man, because I kept thinking – do, do we want really even want to do this show tonight? Because like, how's it, how is it positive? Is there, is there anything positive? And that guy made it positive. Yeah, he sure did. Uh, Cliff says, uh, how, Dan, how did you like this show? Was it like looking in the mirror? Because uh, people were commenting in the chat room while you and Bob Angela were talking you know, that you guys are like historians. You, you, you both know the game so well. It was, it was so cool to have you guys just, converse for a nice long period of time yeah i give all the credit to nfl films which was kind of the maybe i worded the question wrongly by uh denigrating uh millennials i didn't mean it so much that but i just felt like history was really sold by nfl films to us and Mm -hmm. and you know the narratives uh, and everything it's like i wanted more i wanted more but all that was because of steve sable and 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 ESPN at the time, you know, because you didn't have NFL network and showing this stuff. And I wanted to consume it so much. And I mean, fuck, I, I was, you know, eight years old. I could tell you about the highlights of Super Bowl too. You know what I'm saying? Like I fucking gave a shit, but it was because of them. Mm-hmm. And, and now where NFL network doesn't do any of that, which is my point that there's nothing maybe for the younger people to, to get hung on to the way I did. Because right. I latched on to Facenda, and Facenda was already dead, but I, you know, I didn't know that yet. Watching all mm. this stuff, and yeah, so it's all a credit to NFL Films, yeah, all of it uh, for my fandom in that aspect, uh, and Jim McMahon, of course. That's why I'm still a Bears fan. Fucker, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, but that's why I've been loyal to the Bears, man. And I told you before, like when McMahon got traded to San Diego, and I was eight, and I was like pondering if i should become a chargers fan and my dad said something to me that was just like no you can't change teams you mm. have to be loyal or something and then like so that here we are 1989 <laughs> to 2023 <laughs> thanks dad <laughs> yeah. but it was a good life lesson you know it, sure it, yeah that you love the player but the team matters more you know and and mm-hmm. my dad wasn't even a bears fan so you know yeah. but i'm glad he said that to me Zach says you should send your resume over to NFL Films. Uh, I'm not. Why not? I'm not qualified for that. I'm just not. I don't have any special talents like being able to use the the video equipment and things like that. You know. Yeah, Um, but now now it's it's much more specialized. So if you you know you could send them that show that you do that weekly high school football show, you would send them that, and they would say, "Wow, you know, if we ever needed a narrator or somebody who to do something similar to this." Because now they not only do National Football League movies, they do all sorts of other movies. They they do college, they do baseball, they do all sorts of stuff. You never know. They might, you know, you, your resume on somebody's desk, I, I think, would, would attract some attention. I just feel like I, that's a little bit out of my league, honestly. Yeah. That's not selling myself short. That's just being, that's just keeping it real, man. Mm-hmm. Um. So you want to talk about Kansas City at all? And then once you leave, I'm going to finish the media mashup. 
and then also play Johnny Santucci's, Santucci's Bear State of Affairs. So we'll go to about uh, another 30 to 40 minutes, people. Uh, but in the last five minutes, well, no, I don't want to. Let's not talk about the Kansas City game. You and I, in these last few minutes, can we talk about winning time and the massive, massive disappointment oh. that series finale, not season finale, series finale was? Well, for one, I sent you a, uh, a tweet earlier. I sent you a screenshot. I think you saw it where mm-hmm. Perlman and someone else was talking about potentially trying to buy the show and maybe take it somewhere else. Right. Uh, yeah, it was – we talked last week that they rushed through 82 and 83 because it was so good leading up from Magic's rookie year through Westhead being fired. All that was so well done, just dramatically well done. And then you get to Boston after they've rushed through 82 and 83 to get to 84. And for me, if 84 is a cliffhanger and next next season is them finally winning in Boston in game six and 85, then that's perfect. But if you're going to end it, end it on Boston and the loss, it kind of makes the whole season seem pointless. And then for them to install that bullshit ending with the bosses laying on at the forum – which was clearly filmed later. Mm-hmm. You know, if Jerry Buss was so upset over losing to the Rockets in the 81 playoffs and then the Sixers in 83, why suddenly after he loses to Red in Boston is he and his daughter going to be saying, but we own it? Awful ending. Awful. Whoever, the oh. script writers, who, who, you know, they're probably told, hey, HBO's not going to bring us, so let's think of attack on ending. Whoever came up with that idea, they should have been told, come on. Get the fuck out of here. And there's no that just betrays the whole thing. I mean, this guy, Jerry Buss was as competitive as Ma- Magic Johnson was. And for him yeah. to, to go with his daughter at, at the center court, uh, Cliff says he's not gonna watch it now, but I I, I in, insist that if you like sports TV series, watch season one. It was immaculate. Season two, the first several episodes were fantastic, but it obviously there was a shift in tone. The writers were told probably somewhere in, in the middle of, of their well, writing of the entire up. scripts. Yeah. Clean this up because it, those last two, three, four episodes felt so fucking rushed. It was, it, 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 it doesn't, doesn't, I don't know. I can't find the right words to to express my thoughts here. It just betrays the spirit of the show. This was uh, supposed to be about the whole '80s, and you cover the last uh, uh, from '84 on in 60 seconds with titles on the screen. It's so fucking stupid, man. They, they started it out with his HIV diagnosis. Yes, in, in season one, which would have implied we're at least going to get to there. Thank so, you. And why would you start out with that glimpse of 91 and then, oh, by the way, we're quitting after game seven of 84? And, <laughs> I just, yeah, it, it just, <laughs> it was a terrible ending. And it's so, it's so bad because the show had so much potential and at times was good enough to win like a fucking Emmy, I think. Fucking A. I, I and, wouldn't and, be surprised. And the performances, you know, Adrian Brody is Pat Riley. I love the guy playing Kareem, the guy playing Magic. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, John C. Riley is bus. I mean, you had some great performances, and and it's just kind of unless like maybe Showtime or somebody buys it. I mean, it's just going to be one of those things like ah, that could have been something, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Exactly, <laughs> just a yeah. blown opportunity. It, it, yeah, the the even putting the whole seven games in one episode was kind of a little yep. rushed. 
Yep. And, and there was somebody who, who wrote in on, on Jeff Perlman's Twitter feed. He said that he didn't like that it had so much basketball in the last few episodes. And that guy was right. What made the show great was, yeah, it, it had great basketball scenes and, and the actors that they hired were good at playing basketball. But it was the off-the-court stuff that really made this show special. And for them to inject so much basketball to, to rush through that series with the Celtics, that, that also hurt the series. What I think should have happened if we could you know, write, rewrite history, mm-hmm. the second season should have, the way it, it was a slow burn and focused on Westhead getting fired, mm-hmm. the end of season two should have been magic, triumphantly still winning the finals after being booed at his home court and everyone's saying you're the reason Westhead got fired and being able to overcome that demanding a trade and still winning the title the same year. That should have been where season two ended magic on top, Pat Riley. Now the coach they leave with the championship and you start season three off with the Philly stuff. Yep. In 83. Totally, totally agree. Totally agree. You should be an executive producer. You should work for NFL Films. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. All right, brother. I'm going to let you get out of here, and then I'm going to run the media, the rest of the media mashup, and then Tucci's Bear State of Affairs, and then we'll pull the plug on this episode. Well, Go I'm say some lights. Watch it tomorrow, then, so I can hear the rest of the media mashup. Yeah, I'll I'll actually send you. Uh, I'll send you this, uh, just the media mashup. That way, you don't have to find the start point or anything like that. If you if you'd like. That that works. Yeah. All right. Because you right, said bro. that was going to motivate me anyway and said that yeah. that was going to turn me around. I I hope so. Now, again, I was a, I took a little puff of a marijuana cigarette. That's all, all I'm allowed to do by my wife nowadays. Uh, and even she's not too happy about that either. But uh, I, I was a little buzzed and I heard, and I'm forgetting now who it was that said some words. I know now, but, uh, but I won't give it away. But I felt a little encouraged about what could potentially happen the rest of the way. So I'll make sure you hear that, okay? Well, last thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that uh, was that interview maybe the highlight of, of our run or three and a half years? Wow, that's a good question. Because, I mean, good... the Kramer thing was great, too, but we were talking all these dark things. Yeah. Like, that was just pure fun. Yeah. I, that I, was just all fun. Yeah, I'd put it up there. I think there's been moments on our show where just the two of us or with Tooch that we've had a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, I'd have to give that some thought, but definitely top three. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. And I got a feeling that when we have him back on, it'll be even better. I really do have that feeling because there's some stories like he's got a great story about Leslie Frazier that I want him to share with us and – who knows? Maybe Leslie Fazer might be working at Hallis Hall again sometime soon, although he's getting up there in age. I got to believe he's probably close to 70. But uh, the way Bob describes Leslie really makes him seem like an outstanding human being. So that, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, let me go to work and uh, have a good rest of the show here. Okay, brother. Take care. All right, that is Dan Aguirre, the great Dan Aguirre, my good friend. Um, and so I'm going to just pick up with the media mashup. There's about, uh, I don't want to say about 15 to 20 minutes of this. And then we will go uh, to John Santucci's Bear State of Affairs. I'll be uh, hanging out in the chat room, so uh, stick around, people. The Packers hit differently. 
it, it packed a, a bigger punch than I think a lot of guys were expecting. And then it just trickles over because I do think that this team is, is the guys that were here and even some of them who weren't are still feeling the cumulative toll of not having won a football game since last October. I know you guys are, are, are pretty good with the calendar. <laughs> we're pretty close to this October. And so when we're talking about the last win being last October, that, that, that weight is real. And it's something that, that I think probably contributes, but there's other things here. Uh, that, that add to the uneasiness from your point of view, being around the team every day, watching games multiple times. Mm-hmm. Why are things not happening faster for Justin Fields? This is the riddle right now, Lawrence. It really is because it's not only not happening fast enough. It almost seems at times that it's happening slower than it was a year ago. That's whether it's the urgency with, with which he takes this drop, uh, the urgency with which he's seeing things. I mean, there were, there were moments throughout that game yesterday where you're up in the press box and you're going, get rid of it, get, get rid of it, get rid of it. And then it's still in the hands and, and the, the defensive line is swarming on top of you and you're taking a sack and it's a loss of 11. And you're like, why was that ball not out? You know, just why wasn't it out? And they've got to figure out what it is that's causing this hesitance where um, Justin is, is, has been clearly hesitant to throw into contested windows. Uh, he's been clearly hesitant to, to kind of find that rhythm. The, the, I guess the pressing part about it is that first drive looked like it's supposed to look right. You know, obviously the first play, I'm sure they practiced it a thousand times last week and, and he just took the snap. He ripped it to DJ. It's a gain of 30 plus a, a few plays later. You got a key third down. You got a blitz coming your back who, who we talked all off season said, this guy needs to block better and pick up blitzes better picks up the blitz. Justin makes a huge throw. DJ takes you inside the red zone and then you end up scoring on a, on a, on a QB run on a scramble there and you go, man, like get three or four of those today, just drives that look just like that. And then it was like an hour, hour and a half in real time mm. before they moved the ball with any sort of consistency again. Dan Weeder is sponsored by Busey Bank, building business, growing wealth since 1868. Here's one of my goals for this week. And okay. maybe, maybe this starts tomorrow. I want to find out if, if there is now an active lowering of expectations. I know they didn't say anything about, oh, we're going to make the playoffs or we're going to be competitive this year. But when I heard Eberflus after the game, like, hey, we, we improved and we, uh-huh. we were at, what is it, executing at a better clip. And then apparently this morning he's like, well, we just got to get behind us. What are we doing here? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I need to know, because if, if, if we're going for the top pick again – or if if this is just another hey chill out man we'll get we'll be better next year like like this is I, I want to hear from them if they're not alarmed and if they're if they're all mellow and everything's is good vibes babe what are we what's this year about yeah no it better be about more than that it better be about way more than that you better be a much more competitive football team I don't think Matt Eberflus can 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 rest easy at night with a three and six sixteen career record as a head coach here at Hallis Hall and, and say, man, I can afford to lose 12 more games as long as we show modest improvement in a couple areas. Like that's not, that's not good enough at this point. This schedule sets up to be a perfect storm for them because you guys know what week one was, you know what yesterday was. And my goodness, it feels like the chiefs can pretty much just decide when they want to let up on Sunday. You know, that's what it, it's going to look like with a, a defense in Kansas city. That's been playing pretty well. I know their offense hasn't found its groove yet, but, we all know who's pulling the trigger there. And when you allow uh, Jordan Love and Baker Mayfield to put up a rating of 118.3 through two weeks, what's Patrick Mahomes going to do to you? You know, it's target practice if you can't get a rush on them. And and so, yeah, I mean, I guess bigger picture here. You know, I'm looking at a quote here that I think resonated with both of us, Jalen, from you in The Athletic from Kevin Fishbane. 
and on losing 12 in a row. And he said, yeah, hell yeah, it weighs on me. I think about it consistently. I've been here a good minute. You know, I'd rather be happy when we come in on a Monday when we're celebrating a W, you know, and just like knowing knowing you a little and and reading that, it it resonates. So how did it feel today in that building after a tough one? I mean, I would say the same as the last 11. It doesn't doesn't change too much. There's no honorary losses or oh well because it was close or we had a good fourth quarter as a defense or we had a chance that doesn't doesn't make the losses feel any better and I know that nobody feels the losses how us players feel the losses I mean the fans can say we 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 ain't busting busting their butts working the we isn't doing extra sprints the fans aren't the ones doing doing the work the fans aren't the ones putting their bodies on the line preparing watching film for hours doing extra work, trying to keep your body right and healthy. I mean, we 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 love and we always appreciate the fans, but it doesn't it doesn't impact the fans how it impacts us. I mean, I think that we're the one putting our bodies out there. We're the one coming in and having an answer to the media, having an answer to all these different eyes after we put in work, after work and we work hard, we do practice the right way, we practice hard and for us to keep coming up short on Sundays is very disappointing for us in that building, in that locker room. And I know the coaches, they put in their time and their hours to try to come up with game plans. So, I mean, we definitely feel that loss in the building harder than anybody else does. So, I mean, we just got to, like I've been saying for a long time now, we got to just figure out ways to win. We got to learn how to win. And I think that's the biggest thing for us. I don't think it's about our roster. I don't, I mean, I think we have plenty of, plenty of guys, plenty of weapons, plenty of, plenty of talent on our on our roster to to win games. We just gotta learn how to win. We gotta play consistently. Um we gotta we we gotta just make plays consistent. I think we we have it. We're just not consistent enough yet. And I think that's the biggest thing that us as leaders want to put into the team is just we gotta go at a high level. We can't just go and turn it on and off and sometimes be good or sometimes be lead and then other times we're average. Like we don't that's not how you win football games mm-hmm. in this league. You got to go out and you got to take them. And I think that's just what we're trying to preach to each other. That's what we're trying to lean on each other to do. Thank you, Cliff. I'm muted. I'm making this big speech and I'm muted. <laughs> but what I was saying is that I, I take offense to what Jalen Johnson said there about, you know, the players. We, we, we. Yeah, I understand. Us fans, we're not a part of that fraternity. We're not, we're not going through all of the physical exertion and the long hours and the pain of trying to win games. And so I understand that you guys take it in a way that is harder in some respects. But all of us here, Zach, Cliff, Grizz, Demon, who just joined us in the chat, and the hundreds of thousands that are listening to this show, we do this because of our passion for the team and how much it hurts when they lose. There's a bunch of us fans 
who watch a game and then after it's done, they'll go, you know, do this or do that. But there's also a bunch of us fans who that defeat sticks with us for days, sometimes weeks, like this Packer loss. That's going to hurt for a long, long time. I've got it up there with the most disappointing losses ever in my, my lifetime of being a Bears fan. And it really hurts. So I, I, I wish I could talk to Jalen about this so that he can understand the fans' perspective because I definitely understand the players' perspective. I I appreciate what they are doing to put their lives on the line, you know, uh, and how hard they have to prepare and so forth. But I thought it was a little bit of a slap in the face uh, to, you know, kind of exclude us in, in that we. And maybe I'm totally off here. Uh, but that's that's how I feel. I, I put way too much into my Bears fandom to uh, have a player kind of bitch slap it down. So Stephen Me says uh, Jalen Johnson has one interception in three years, and we and we took him three picks before Jalen Hurts. Tell me about it, Steve. I was a big Hurts fan coming out of college. Um, yeah, <laughs> something about the deaf contractor. But anyway, let's get back to. Uh, our media mashup and just find ways to win. Do you, um, do anybody get angry today? Like as you're watching stuff, I mean, we think of you guys as passionate, sometimes very violent athletes. Any we anger get angry today? Fans get angry. I wouldn't say anger. I feel like that's a, that's a strong word. I think this, disappointment, I think you get out there and you kind of see like where you could have made the plays and how, like what you were thinking in that moment. And then kind of looking back at it now, like, you kind of just wish you has you had you had some opportunity to do some things over again, but I mean, like we know in life there aren't there aren't do overs. You just have your next opportunity, and I mean that's all we're that's all we can be focused on right now. All right, so Lance, we had Coach Eberfuss on earlier and asked him a direct question: Is Justin allowed to audible? And he said yes. We audible all the time from run to pass, pass to run to a different play, whatever the case may be, pass to pass. So I want to take you back to the six yard line, 20 to 17 Tampa late in the ball game. You've got a you've got timeouts left. You also have the two minute warning left. And Levante David tells the media in Tampa, we knew what play was coming. They called a screen. You know, they were the same formation. Everybody knew what was coming. So he ran out. You know, he got the That play wasn't going to be anything. And so Shaquille Barrett reaches up with one hand. Thank you very much. And walks into the end zone with an escort. Game over. They lose. So in your opinion, is that on the quarterback is that on the play caller, a combination of both? Because if Justin can audible, then what the hell are you doing throwing an inside screen right there into the mess? Well, I, I, I love hearing um, um, that the defender from, from Tampa talk about, say, hey, listen, we knew it was coming. That was the formation. They, they, do, they do their homework. You know, they do their homework, which is awesome to hear. You know what I mean? I'd love to hear that more from our players. Um, but you know, obviously it was, a, it's a bad call. I think it's, it starts there. It starts there and it was and then poor execution. Um, you know, and, and for, as far as, as far as Justin, I mean, in preparation for the game, I'm sure that the coaches say, Hey, if you see this, then check out of it. Or if you see this, check out of it. Or this, if, if you don't see any of these things, then run the play. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not in the room with them. 
but I would assume that that the the audible is based off of the look that the, that the defense is giving or presenting. Or if you don't get that look, then you run. You continue to run the play. Again, I'm not in the room with them. I don't know. I do know that that in the past and in offenses that I've played with, um, they that was one of the things that 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 controlled the audible or lack thereof. The great Lance Briggs is with us here on the Cap and J Hood Morning Show on ESPN 1000 and streaming on the ESPN Chicago app. What do you think of the defense, the defensive line against Baker Mayfield? This is a stop a stopgap quarterback that looked like Patrick Mahomes out there. Yeah, well, I mean, there were opportunities. You know, there were some opportunities to get him down, and they didn't get him down. You know, those that, that turns these uh, these these second and long or third and long plays into uh, uh, first downs, or it, it moves the chains, or it gets them in the third and very short situations. Um, it, but the opportunities were there. They had more opportunities this week than they did last week. You know, they got closer to the quarterback. Um, the problem was that Baker, you know, Baker was out there Mayfield. You know what I mean? He, he was making plays. And so, uh, um, um, and it, you know, and it, to me, it's also an issue of, of we have to stop the big plays. You know, we go from from a potential sack to uh, a third and short situation, and then you know when he's throwing that ball, you know, flicking it left or flicking it right, and then throwing it, and uh, and uh, and Mike Evans is turning a twenty yarder into a, a sixty yarder. You know, those are our drive killing plays for us. They're in a rut right now. Oh my God! They they, they have found this themselves a in a rut and and key situations in fourth downs. It'll be the awkward penalty, the silly penalty, it, a, a silly drop. It, it, right? It's it's something. It's everything. Uh, uh, a miss a miss tackle. Miss tackle. Miss assignment. How many miss tackles yeah. yesterday? Yeah. Jack Sanborn. Yannick yeah. Ngakwe. Yep. Tremaine Edmonds. Miss sacks. I mean, I know he Hobo had a bunch X. when it was all said and done. There were, like how many missed tackles where yep. plays can be made? Yeah. To your point. They're not being made, and it's culminated in this. Again, losing 12 in a row in now, this league is hard. You really have to suck. In the process of learning how to win, it doesn't mean you win all the time. But you have a crystal clear understanding of what it takes to, to win, and not just talk about it, but you've got to experience it. Carb, talking about it doesn't matter. Experiencing it is what's important. They need to experience the success of what it takes to finally win a game. Justin is 5-22 and 22 as a starter, folks. He's lost 10 straight. That's the longest streak. Are you ready for this? For all of the bitching and complaining we've done about the quarterback play for our beloved team over the years, those 10 straight losses, that's the longest active streak by a Bears quarterback in the Super Bowl era. That stretches back over 50 years. This is the longest active losing streak by a quarterback in the NFL. He's 5-22. and 22. And while I don't want to just blame all of this on Justin, and, and that would be unfair, but at the same time, the quarterback that is supposed to be your future is 5-22. and 22. I'm not going to blame Justin Fields. I'm not going to. Why? Because this is the year we're going to learn whether he can play or not. And guess how many games you've got left in this year? 15. He's got 15 games to prove himself. Did he prove himself two years ago when he was a rookie? No. Did he prove himself last year as a quarterback, as a passer? No. He did prove to the world that he could be one hell of a dynamic runner and on broken plays. He could find open receivers. He did prove that last year. 100% correct. That's what he did. But he hasn't proven he can be a quarterback in the NFL yet. That's what this year is for. 
I'm in game two of a 17-game evaluation process. And dare I say, I will not jump to conclusions. Okay? Because he's the same quarterback he was last year. Well, he hasn't changed. I mean, it's changed. like going on 30 games. It I mean, hasn't changed, and it's getting better. Carm, you sat here with me last year, and the whole goal was to get a first-round draft choice while trying to develop your quarterback. Did they get the first round uh, draft first choice? pick, like a high first Did they pick get league? the first pick? Yes. So they achieved the goal they went out and tried to achieve. Are Traded they doing everybody that again? away, got a ton of dead money. No, I don't think so. No. I think this is the year of trying to develop the quarterback. But Olsen joined us during the offseason. Remember, he played with Cam Newton when Cam won his most valuable player, and he was a dual-threat quarterback when he could throw it and he could run it. So Olsen reminded us of this. Don't don't forget about Justin running the football. And what did he rush for yesterday? Three yards? I think he ended up with four carries for three yards, but I think there were three, like, true runs. And so here was Olsen from a, with us a few months ago. For whatever reason, the, the NFL fan base and the media and, and, you know, whoever you want to put into that bucket, and they look at quarterbacks who run and with quarterbacks who make plays with their feet, whether it's off scramble, off script, or it's designed, you know, whether it's designed option, designed keep, you know, a lot of the things that we saw Chicago do with Justin last year. Whichever one of those cases, we have this weird, we jump to the conclusion that just because he runs, it's because they're unable to play from the pocket. They're unable to do a lot of the more quote unquote prototypical quarterback things. And I don't think that's the case with Justin. So I think there needs to be a balance both within and outside the organization, where they say, we're going to continue to play to Justin's strengths, which is as an athlete, but along those, we're going to continue to develop him as a passer. And one does not have to take away from the other. You just have to do it in a smart way. So I think the biggest thing they need to do, continue to develop the on-rhythm passing game, the on-time passing game, both pre- and post-snap declarations, decision-making, being on time with the ball, understanding what looks defenses are giving both when the when they're lining up and then post snap with the disguise. Like as he continues to progress in those areas, don't force feed that in lieu of doing what his strengths are. Right? As I always used to tell young players, never lose what you hang your hat on. Whatever you hang your hat on, always be great at that as you build the other things in your game. So I would say the same thing to Justin. Continue to be a playmaker. Continue to be a game changer with the ball in your hands. The year he had last year was incredible what he did with the ball. He was really one of the main only threats on the team. As he developed that passing game, the more traditional passing game, it'll just make him that much more dangerous of a player. He can be both. One does not have to necessarily take away from the other. I love when he said it then, and I love it even more now because it was almost like he forecasted what the Bears were possibly going to do. Yesterday looked like they only wanted him to play from the pocket. I think they do need to give him more quarterback run calls. But sometimes, too, their running game is a read option. And defenses are defending them differently this year as well. So when he puts the ball in the belly of Khalil Herbert, sometimes last year the end was crashing down and he'd take the ball and run. Well, I mean, these defensive coordinators got wise to get their ass kicked by him running the football last year. So what these defensive ends are doing now is they're staying at home. And if that's the read and the read is to keep it in the belly of the running back, Justin's not taking it and keeping it because defenses have adjusted to him. Now, that doesn't mean you can't design some quarterback runs. But I think teams have adjusted to what they saw last year. And that may take some of his 
you know, rushing totals away from him. That's just the nature of the beast. Look, I, I, I could give you the Mitch Trubisky game plan. We could cut the field in half and we could roll to the right or roll to the left and just focus on that. But at the end of the day, that ceiling is like it's an artificial ceiling. Right. And then what, where are then you where going are you with that? And then what, what are you learning about Justin so, with that? Right. So, like, I get it. And there's some frustration that I have about some of the stuff I'm seeing. Are they putting him in position to take advantage of what he does? Well, maybe the defense is adjusting and that's why he's leaving the ball and making the right choice by leaving it in the running back's gut. Could they do more? Yes, but they also have to find out if he can function from the pocket. If you go to the Mitch Trubisky escape route in week three, I don't know if you're doing yourself or your team any long-term benefit. What you're doing is you're trying to put a Band-Aid on a head wound. There you go, our media mashup. Uh, I really think that Waddle did a great job of summarizing where the Chicago Bears, in particular Justin Fields, is at. You know, maybe we just need to dedicate the season towards finding out whether this guy can be a true NFL quarterback. Um, at the at or can let's put it this way. It, whether he can be a pocket passer need to find that out and if after a few games a couple a couple more disasters like the first two weeks if that continues and it looks like he's never going to be a pocket passer then you go to plan b and have him play his street style of game or or however you want to label it play to his strengths use his legs and so forth but i do think it's it's necessary somehow, some ways to know if this guy can can throw, because if not, then what you want to do is build the best running attack in football, and um, and one pass catcher like he's got with DJ Moore, and they got a budding chemistry, and, and and devote yourself to that approach. Right now, what we need to know is a little bit more about Justin Fields. So I'm not ready to. You know, say Tyson Bajan should be starting against the Kansas City Chiefs like Greg, Greg Gabriel did. No way. I don't think that's a good idea of the organization. I don't think that's a good idea for Tyson Bajan. I'd like to see him be announced on the 53-man active roster on Sunday against Kansas City. And if something happens to uh, Justin, then he's going to get some snaps. Uh, but I'd love for him to just be the backup quarterback for a while. Somebody who is going to be a guest on Buffon 55 uh, posted something on X recently about look at Jordan Love. He comes out and has two decent games, a good game against the Bears and uh, I think a so-so game against the, the Falcons. But do you? there's no way he would have been playing football at the level that he ha, that he's playing at now if he had played in any of those three seasons he was with the team. You know, that whole approach of mentoring and, 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 and slowly developing your quarterback has been lost on a lot of teams because they were, the NFL coaches have adopted the college-style offense to help expedite the growth of some of these players. But there's still players like maybe Jordan Love and, and maybe Justin Fields and maybe even Mitchell Trubisky who really would have benefited from sitting a year or two and developing by learning from a good quarterback. So I don't know, man. I, I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm like Heidi and 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 Dan Aguirre. I'm very very upset that it appears like Justin Fields might not be the guy, but I, I want to give him a few more games to hopefully prove me wrong and prove others wrong. All right, let's uh, check out uh, Johnny Santucci's Bears State of Affairs. <laughs> <laughs> Bears State of Affairs 2023 NFL season week three. What's happening, bar flies? Well, week two of the NFL season has come and gone, and the Bears are 0-2 heading into Arrowhead this weekend to play the world champion Chiefs. Last Sunday, the Bears traveled to Tampa Bay to play the Buccaneers and lost 27-17, a game in which the Bears had a chance to tie the game or win in the fourth quarter when they trailed 20 to 17. Those chances quickly evaporated when the Bears called three straight screen passes inside their own 10-yard line, the last of which was intercepted by Tampa Bay defensive lineman Shaq Barrett and returned for a game-winning touchdown. So where are we, Bears fans? I'll tell you where we are. We are no longer between panic and patience after week two. We are firmly in panic mode as the Bears have lost 12 games in a row and in those 12 games, they have scored less than 25 points each time. They are the first team in NFL history to accomplish that feat. Yep, we're setting the wrong kinds of records now. The Bears are 0-2, going on the road to Arrowhead Stadium as 13-point underdogs. The team is desperately trying to avoid falling to 0-3 on the season against the defending Super Bowl Chiefs. Good luck with that. The Bears' next loss will be their 13th in a row. Yeah, it's time to panic. At his press conference after the Buccaneers game, Matt Eberflus immediately shot down a question about whether he was worried about his team's morale by saying, there's nothing there. We're steadfast. We're straightforward. And we're all in this together as coaches, as players, Eberflus said. We are looking at a great Wednesday practice and looking toward Kansas City. That's what we're looking at. Hmm. Where have we heard this before? Oh, yeah. From every Bears head coach after Mike Ditka. It's the same old garbage that every Bears coach who knows he's in dire straits always says. Just once I'd like to hear the coach say, We suck. None of us, players or coaches, did anything to help the team win. I feel like beating the shit out of everybody in the building. This week of practice will be worse than the ninth circle of hell. Every assistant better shape up or get the fuck out of here. I will cut anybody who isn't playing hard or doesn't want to be here. Look, I'm done with this coaching staff. I've seen enough. I'm certain that we will never read the headline, Matt Eberflus coaches the Chicago Bears to a Super Bowl victory. That will never happen. So Coach Flus, he's just wasting his time, wasting our time. Like I said last week, Coach E needs to polish up his resume. This is the same feeling I had with Matt Nagy and his staff during Nagy's second season with the Bears. Coach Eberflos and his staff are in over their heads. They're guys who believe they could do the job. They can't. We're headed toward losing our 13th game in a row. These coaches don't have any answers because they're learning on the job like every other Bears coach we've hired. The front office, they don't have any answers either. Ownership, don't make me laugh. The owner is literally 100 years old. I'm not making that up. The current Bears regime... It's not sustainable. Let me tell you why I'm out on this Bears coaching staff. 
After week one, the results were so bad that defensive coordinator Alan Williams took a mental health day or called in sick. I don't know. But that left play calling duties on defense to head coach Matt Eberflus on Sunday. After week two, the results may have been worse. In Tampa Bay, ironically playing his version of the Tampa 2, the Bears' defense gave up over 400 yards of offense to Baker Mayfield and the Buccaneers. After week one, Jalen Johnson said the Bears needed to go back to the drawing board. We went back to the drawing board after week one. It was only week one. What are we going back to now after week two? A magic drawing board? Maybe one that has all the answers? This week, Johnson had this to say about quarterback Justin Fields. Quote, I know he's not himself. Bears fans, we also know he's not himself. We can see it. That's why we're panicking. The data is out there. Justin Fields rushed for 1,143 rushing yards in 2022. That was the second most total in NFL history at the position. Fields also threw for 2,242 yards, 17 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions in 15 starts. So far, through two games, Fields has completed 60% of his passes for 427 yards, two touchdowns, three interceptions, and only 62 rushing yards. His mechanics look off. His drops are bad. His footwork is bad. He's throwing wobbly passes out there. He's thinking too much. It makes you wonder, what are we paying his quarterback coach to do? The Bears have broken the quarterback again. So I'm out on these coaches. And if you watched former Bears quarterback J.T. O'Sullivan break down the last two Bears games, you'll know why. If you haven't watched his breakdowns, you really should. He points out a lot of the things wrong with this Bears team. Offensive players not knowing their assignments. Fields not anticipating throwing before the man comes open. Fields holding the ball too long. Offensive linemen blowing protections and missing their blocks. Bad play design, terrible play calling, wide receivers not knowing the plays, the tight end playing laughably bad. There's a lot more. Just watch. You'll see. Hell, the Bears will be better off firing the current quarterback coach and replacing him with O'Sullivan. I'll tell you this. I might be out on Ryan Poles, too. The Bears have not drafted a blue-chip player in years. The last guy was maybe Roquan Smith. And we traded him away as part of a rebuild. The last blue chip left tackle, Jim Covert. The last blue chip pass rusher we drafted, Richard Dent. Blue chip cornerback, Peanut Tillman. Blue chip quarterback, it's either Sid Luckman or never. How it's possible there aren't any people alive today who saw Sid Luckman play, except maybe Virginia McCaskey. Do you see any blue chip players on the Bears team now? Maybe Poles isn't the guy either. I've said for years we have to stop hiring first-time GMs who are learning on the job and first-time head coaches, too. Lack of success in the draft, year after year, becomes a record-setting 12-game losing streak. It becomes a carousel of coaching staffs. It becomes a long list of failed GMs and personnel yes-men who swung and missed perennially in the NFL draft. It becomes a faithful fan base bringing out the Boo Birds in the very first game. The fans know. They can see the ineptitude. Why? Because this is a recurring theme for going on 40 years. The Bears are on life support after two weeks into this NFL season. Maybe the Bears coaches can fake it with Justin Fields and save their jobs for another season. I don't know. Maybe they can simplify the offense. 
Trubiscafiance or whatever. Who knows? I just know that Bears fans are hurting. And I think what hurts us most as Bears fans is that we were so high on Justin Fields being the guy who could break the decades-long period of suffering and failure at the quarterback position. And now we're teetering on the brink of another failed quarterback. And it isn't all the players' fault. A big part of all of the stagnation is the Bears organization's systemic failure in identifying, procuring, and developing what fundamentally is the most difficult position in sports to play. The Bears, like I said last week, have been unable for decades to draft and develop a quarterback. And maybe 40 years of failure and frustration at the quarterback position is too much for any young player to bear the weight of. And that is Bears State of Affairs. Johnny Santucci, Cliff, you're right. It's one of our most favorite segments. Tooch really is a very, very good writer. Agree or disagree with whatever he's got to say. He's he uh, when he puts it down pen to paper or however he writes, whatever tool he uses, does a great job. Uh, kudos to him. I got a couple of saved comments here, and then we'll get to the weather report. Um, Steve Steve just said uh, it's not the coach. Just find a fucking quarterback already. There is. It seems like the patience for many people has just. Worn out on uh, Justin. You know, it's interesting because I was reflecting back on my thoughts, and I've always tried to be a Bears fan and 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 always say, you know, I, I'm confident that he's going to get there. I'm confident, but deep down inside, I've had all these questions. You know, these short passes, these little screen yards where he's a wide receiver screens where he's off the mark. The footwork now looks worse than it ever has. Um, you know, the, he's being criticized a lot for being lethargic. Uh, and, and so, I don't know, man. It it just feels it's starting to feel like, uh, in a very convincing way, that he's not the guy. And and again, I'm a fan, so I hope he he outplays Patrick Mahomes this Sunday and you know says, hey, barroom people who doubt at me, you know, gives us the finger. I would love to see that, but my eyes are telling me right now he's just not the guy. So we shall see. Uh, hey, I got a clip here before I go to some of this other stuff I have. Uh, this is Dan Orlovsky. He was on the uh, – what's the name of this guy who just signed with ESPN, uh, the shirtless guy, Pat McAfee. <laughs> he was on a Pat McAfee show talking about uh, Justin Fields. I actually didn't see the whole thing. It's two minutes, but let's see how if it's interesting. Justin right now looks like one of two things. When you watch him drop, it's he's thinking while he's dropping. He's not like um, he's he's being reactive rather than proactive. You could watch it with his feet. He's like one. What what are you doing? I don't know where to look. Like it, it, there's too many examples of that. So it, this is one of two things. He either can't see the field and can't read defenses, or he has absolutely zero trust and belief in what he's looking at. Like we've all seen the clip on the internet with the seam, you know, like he, the weird thing about that play with the tailback, when he leaks out the seam and it's that four strong debut, he goes like this, he goes to throw the ball. Mm -hmm. Like he, he pats it and goes to pull the trigger and doesn't. And that's when you sit there, you see it. I know you see it. Your body language tell me you see it. Why aren't you throwing it? There's another one when he – I think it's, you know, a third and 13, and he takes a sack, and it's Sale, 
and they drop down at sale. So it's a post on the outside. Mm -hmm. It's like a corner from the slot and it's in route on the backside. Mm -hmm. And you know, the safety drops down and, and D butt knows this, the nickel plays man coverage and he's outside leverage quarterbacks. We get taught on sale two times. We immediately get back to the inside. Cover two, because the play's going to stink front side. Yep. Yeah, this one. The yeah. safety drops down. That, 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 that nickel's playing outside leverage and riding the slot receiver vertically on his outside. But get to the backside end. Look at the top. Like, right now, you get there. Yeah, that, that backside end, once you read the release of that slot receiver and that nickel defender is playing so hard outside leverage and that safety's dropping down, dude, that in route is now. That's that, DJ that Moore is, back there, too. Yep. But it's it, no doubt, you know, and it's like, I, it, it, is he getting taught that? I thought that was really brilliant, and I'm glad that he is being exposed. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, well, gotta, you, you got to be careful, you know, with, with Justin and not be too critical. If I'm a member of the media, he's, he's due to come out and talk to the media Wednesday. He should be asked these questions. Hey, Justin, you know, there's a lot of tape going up, uh, TV analysts and, and other people looking at tape, and they are saying that you're not seeing the open man, that you're not anticipating your wide receivers. You're not throwing them open. What's What do you say to that? Uh, where is your progress on that? Uh, and really put the, put the screws to him on this because he has to toughen up. You know, if he is concerned with anything that people are saying about him, uh, he's got his eyes closed on, on the sidelines as, as if he needs to meditate. You know, in Chicago, we want a gunslinger. We want a whiskey drinker. We want a guy who's got the biggest balls in the room. That's necessary to quarterback a Chicago team. And we haven't had one in a long time. And, it, and, and Justin Kim potentially be that a guy but he's got to start proving it. And he's got to start proving it next week in kansas city um see i had another comment here starred this was from steve when we were talking with bob angelo steve sable absolutely loved pro football even when it wasn't so popular that the love for the game really came across in nfl films you're absolutely right steve he seemed like a guy that would have done the job for free. Yeah, and I know a little bit about how he got into the business. His father owned a, a I think a like a tailor. He was a tailor or something, and he had some money and he wanted to invest in a company. And so he had always liked cameras. And so Ed Sable started this movie company, and they would hire themselves up to company and make uh, companies and make industrial films. And then he recruited his son to come work for him. His son was just, kind of, Steve was just kind of enjoying life in his early 20s and not giving a shit about anything. But he came to work, and it was the best thing that could have happened to us fans of football and uh, fans of art, because I really do believe those films are, are artistic. Steve Sable took a liking to writing the scripts and and his affinity for movies and movie soundtracks really helped him uh, become a very proficient uh, filmmaker. So uh, it's a great story. You can find all these stories online. Steve says, although for quarterback, he's got the whiskey drink. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I guess he's got the whiskey drinking part down. That's me. Um, all right, let's see what else I got. Oh, the weather. They want to go to the weather. This is a uh, Monica Frausto. You can find her on Instagram at Moni, M-O-N-I underscore Frausto, F-R-A-U-S-T-O. She's a lovely weather. She does the weather somewhere. Uh, I think it's in Mexico. I'm pretty sure it's in Mexico. But here she's giving us the forecast at Arrowhead Stadium at kickoff. It'll be about 78 degrees. It's a 3.30 central. I start at 3.15, 3.20. And so Monica is pointing that out right now for us. And... Um, I personally love that dress on her. I think she looks great in black. And I haven't had a comment in the chat room for quite some time. So I would say you guys get your hands out of your pants and let me know. Uh, Cliff thinks that's plastic surgery, the booty. Uh, it could be because that that's really hard uh, for God to do something like that. <laughs> She's a lovely lady, and we welcome her back anytime she wants to do the weather for an upcoming Bears game. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I was actually thinking about, man, it would be nice if we do a two-hour episode so I can uh, get to some other things and stuff. And here we are, three hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I said the same thing when I first found that video. <laughs> Uh, Steve says she's got some great points. Yes, she does. All right, everybody. I'm going to say goodbye. But first, I want to let you know that tomorrow our coverage starts at 2 p.m. Bar Down Talking Hockey NHL season is quickly coming upon us. And so you need to listen to Bar Down Hockey Talk to really get up to speed on what's happening throughout the NHL. And things are looking interesting for the Chicago Blackhawks. They may not be a playoff team, but they've got some young players who are really going to take the league by storm. Just give them a little time to develop. At the Prospects game the other day, uh, Connor Bedard, their number one overall draft pick, scored a hat trick. And that's, that hat trick, I think, was a promise to all Chicago hockey fans that he's going to be a great NHL player. So Bardon Talking Hockey will uh, help you understand the game a little better. And at 6 p.m., Mac and Reed, two very, very cool dudes uh, who love the game of football and pop culture. They'll give you a 60-minute show That's it's uh, definitely worth your time. And then at 7.30, John Buffone is going to preview the Kansas City Chiefs game. But before that, he's going to give you five rants. Um, and nobody gets as fired up as John Buffone. He's had it with this team. So it's going to be interesting to see what he comes up with. Him and his co-host, Alyssa Barbieri, and you uh, this season, Danny Shimon, our lead analyst at the bar room here. He is providing uh, in-depth analysis uh, for the last 40 minutes of that show. So that's all tomorrow on Wednesday, Buffone 55 at 7.30, Mac and Reed at 6 p.m. All these times are central, and then at 2 p.m., Bar Down Talking Hockey. So let's see what the last few comments here. Great show, guys. Great show. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Frank, Nicholas, Steve, Cliff. Uh, so many of you stuck with us for the majority of the show. Really appreciate it. We'll see you all very, very soon. Bye-bye. Oh, wrong video. We didn't get a dance sex life uh, segment today. Maybe next time.
Doug Atkins was like a storm rolling over a Kansas farmhouse. He came from all directions, and all there was to do 